The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to... The Iron List! Very nice. Thank you. My name is William Bibiani. I am a critic. Everybody calls me Bibbs. My name is Witness Cycles. <laughs> <laughs> that's all you need to know. Uh, my name is Whitney Seibel. I am I too am a critic. And this is uh this is our list show. Yeah. Uh film critics are have to do a lot of lists in our lines of work. Uh they're a good way to condense recommendations around a theme. Yeah. Uh, Roger Ebert famously hated lists. Mm-hmm. He had a, a column where uh, it was the um, the movie Answer Man. Yeah. Could write in and just ask him questions about movies in general, specific movies that had just come out. It was a long-running column. And he said, there are a few rules. I, I don't do, like, trivia, and I will never do lists. It's like, can you recommend a list of blank? No. <laughs> <laughs> he was staunchly opposed to them. I do uh, not have those they, predilections. Uh, I think they're a perfectly decent way to recommend movies to people, which is a big part of our job. Yeah. Re- recommending mo- If you see them as lists of recommendations, mm-hmm. they serve a very vital function. Mm-hmm. Uh, doesn't make them fun to write all the time. No. No. But And, and I, you always get a lot of pushback because whenever you write a list, it's considered to be like authoritative in some way rather yeah. than a mere list of recommendations. Yeah. People are saying like, oh, so you're trying to end the conversation and you left out these films. Mm-hmm. And you included this film. So you're a jerk. No, I, like, I'm just no. recommending these ones. Yeah. yeah. They, please. These are the ones that I think are the best or the most interesting along this category of this year or from this filmmaker mm-hmm. and this genre or and, from this topic which is our week's topic this week uh, or a month rather <laughs> or this, month, is, this is a monthly show uh because we tend to take a lot of time to do our lists and we like to really get into the weeds with the movies that we recommend every month we put forth four possible topics over at the critically acclaimed patreon page patreon.com slash critically acclaimed network and every single one of our patrons has the opportunity to vote for one of those four Topics. Previous topics include the best Christmas movies, the best films noir, the best ghost movies was last week and week. Month. I keep saying uh, <laughs> month. I'm not I'm not editing that out. They're months. Uh, but this month, this month, uh, the topic that was chosen was the greatest movie remakes ever made. This became a popular topic in the early 2000s when studios decided, hey, we want to save money on marketing mm-hmm. and rely on name recognition. If they remake a famous movie, their job is already done. Mm-hmm. They don't have to explain the premise. They just have to say from a, in the tradition of something you already know. And it was an easy way uh, to sell a film and it was an easy way to get people in seats. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you tried to sell an original horror concept, probably attract fewer people than a new Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Mm-hmm. Because people already have some uh, uh, awareness of the franchise. They already know whether or not they like it. And they're likely to give it a chance. Or at least that is the idea. However, the concept of a remake is not new. (laughs) In fact, uh, one of the first movies ever made was a remake. Uh, Remakes have been going around since the early 1900s. You may have heard of the film uh, The Great Train Robbery. Which Mm -hmm. is considered the first 
uh, sort of narrative feature. Yeah. yeah, it's not really feature, but like it's not feature length, but it was long for the time. And it was the story of a daring cowboy train heist. And that movie was so successful that the year afterwards, they released another one. Same story, same title. <laughs> Remakes are not new. Remakes mm. are part of the industry. Remakes are something that have been part of storytelling for a really, really long time. We tell the same stories over and over and over again. That's what oral tradition was. Mm. And people would add new flavors or new context mm. over time. Uh, plays would get restaged in dramatic and interesting new ways. Uh, novels would mm. get retold. Uh, and of course, movies are no different. Just as songs get covered all the time, mm. movie stories get remade all the time. But with movies, it's a little interesting because for whatever reason, I find often people consider the version of the movie that they like the most to be pretty sacred. Mm. Well, here here's the weird thing about movies, and it's all based on its technology. Mm-hmm. You can restage a play because theater is ephemeral. You're, it's, it only lasts for as long as you're watching That's it, and point. then it's gone. Yeah. Uh, film is a recorded medium, and as such, when you record something, it's essentially eternal. It's for it, posterity. It is, yeah, you, you've now made, written, recorded this story for posterity. Mm-hmm. So the idea of remaking it means you're actively trying to replace, supplant, or change the direction of something that already exists. Yeah. And a lot of people have uh, come to blows over remakes. Mm-hmm. Uh, the fact, you know, you can't remake X, that one is sacred. Uh, oh no, you're going to remake X? Wait a minute, but it's been remade before, that sort of thing. Or X itself mm. was a remake, as is often the case. Like The Wizard of Oz, for technically instance. Technically a so. remake. There was a silent film of The Wizard of Oz, and then there's another one, which brings me to another issue, before mm. we get into our picks for the best remakes ever made. It's that literary adaptation. Some people argue, and I'll, I'll give my take on this in a second, but some people argue that a remake is not a remake if it's a readaptation of a pre-existing story. Mm. So, for example, The Wizard of Oz would not be a remake because they're not going off of the silent film, they're going back to the book. Mm. To which I argue, I don't care. I don't think that's (laughs) relevant, and here's why I don't think it's relevant. Uh And I will yield the floor right afterwards. Mm. For me, what matters isn't the source material. What matters is the movie, the story, has been told in movie form before, Mm. and now it's being told again. We made that story, and now we're remaking it. And yeah, we might change the setting or update certain elements, but the story itself has Mm. been told. Which is why Mm. I would argue that, although there's a lot of different reboots of Batman, they haven't all told the exact same Batman story. Batman Begins is not a remake of Tim Burton's Batman. mm. They're different stories with the same character. Uh, That said, if it's a a beloved piece of literature that is adapted time and time again... Mm -hmm. Like Dracula, I wouldn't consider all the Draculas remakes of Todd Browning's Dracula. Sure, I can appreciate uh, that. I, I was tempted to put the the 2003 Peter Pan film on my list when I realized mm. no, that's just another film version of Peter Pan. Mm-hmm. There have been scads of those. Same okay. with uh, you know uh, Hercules or Sherlock Holmes or Tarzan. You know these are all mm-hmm. characters that we visit time and time again in cinema. Uh, so. Where the there's there's definitely a definition somewhere in here. What mm-hmm. constitutes another literary adaptation and a remake? Now, when it comes to uh, a lot of the live action or CGI animated uh, remakes of Disney animated films, mm. which have been really popular and really profitable in the last couple of years, I would say that those are all definitely remakes. Definitely. Now, 
both of the films of the Jungle Book are based on Rudyard Kipling. Yes. But neither of those are necessarily faithful adaptations of Kipling. That's as may be. Mm -hmm. But the new CGI version is clearly taking all of its visual cues and even repeating songs that were written for the 1967 animated film. So that is a remake of the animated film, not another adaptation of Kipling. So your argument, and again, Mm. my my issue with this kind of codification Mm. of ground rules for a Mm. list. Well, Well, again, this is just a suggestion of ground rules. Here's the deal. Mm. Whitney and I do not discuss our criteria for this ahead of time, usually. Yeah. Um, we come. We have our own definition of what these things mean. We let the loose guideline of the title of the episode mm-hmm. stand, and then we both go our separate ways and make our separate lists. But before we give our lists, we establish what we think. So it sounds like what you're saying mm-hmm. is that a readaptation would only count in your eyes as a remake if it, in some form, commented on or took direct inspiration on or was part of the same tradition as the original film as as a previous screenplay yeah, yeah. uh if if one is ad- adapting a famous book like i wouldn't mm-hmm. is oz the great and powerful a remake of the or i guess it would be a prequel to yeah the film version of that's the not a of remake oz. yeah that's yeah, not a, that's um, a different story so th- sorry that that that's not, not the great example. not the best example um but uh, is Tim it Burton's Alice in Wonderland, which tells a different mm. kind of story of Alice in Wonderland. Yeah, is that a is that a remake? Well, yeah, actually, we just kind of argued that. Actually, that's also that's that, that one's a sequel. But uh, <laughs> yeah, um... technically no, because the re- the the sequel to Tim Burton's Alice in mm. Wonderland, Alice Through the Looking Glass, mm. establishes that whenever they were referring to previous adventures with Alice, they were not referring to the animated movie; they were referring to the time travel antics of the sequel slash prequel. Oh yeah, I guess you're right. Oh, okay. Those movies, not, those movies are not great. No, clearly, people aren't thinking these things through, <laughs> uh, and and that that's another embarrassing thing. We're putting a lot of thought and a lot of doing a lot of mental calisthenics to put like you know hang tags on these things, Here's, try to define them. Whereas a lot of the people who made these films didn't care, and in yeah. fact, a lot of the marketing departments in these studios started coining phrases like reimagination uh-huh. or rebooting. You know, well, a lot of that is just based these... on the stigma that remakes have. Exactly. People don't like them. Because, yeah. because of the stigma that came, came to be attached to the word remake. Just call them all remakes. It's fine. That's 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 my ultimate um, argument. Doesn't yeah, help if the conversation yeah. to say this isn't a remake. If it's skipping past all the previous film versions and drawing straight from the book again... Like if it's another Anna Karenina, that's a literary ad- mm-hmm. adaptation. If it's drawing from a previous screenplay, that's a remake. And those are the list, and that's mm-hmm. as, as as vague and as broad as I'm willing to get. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I don't even and, go that far. I think if it's been made before, these, if it's been made yeah. again, if you want to call it a remake, I don't think there's much of an argument. Yeah. And if one, you want to get technical, fine. But I think you've basically remade it. Uh, one of at least one of mine mm-hmm. uh, is a little bit of an iffy definition. Mm-hmm. And how about we just start there? Okay, so we're just going to jump right in. And again, for those who may be new to our lists, when we do our lists, we don't rank them. These are all recommended. These are all highly recommended Mm. based on the criteria that we have chosen. We like all these movies. We hope you see all of them. We do, for the sake of posterity, have our number one pick, and we'll save that for last. Mm. But other than that, we're just going to go back and forth. And we're going to recommend a whole bunch of movies to you, and what order they go in does not matter. Yeah. So, so Whitney, number seven, it, we, we, we'll, we'll even say like, "What's your number seven? It's just mean like, "What's, what's counting next down? What's next yeah. in the list?" So, what uh, is so your first pick? Does does the 1986 film musical version of Little Shop of Horrors count as a remake of the 50s of the 1960 film? 
Yes, and I should have had that on my list. Okay, <laughs> I'm going to say yes because because it, yeah. it's a it's a dramatic reinterpretation, and of course it is based but on a on a play. It's based on a musical, but that the was inspired musical, by the movie, but the musical was regardless, mm-hmm. regardless, you can see the influence, you can see the 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 clear through line mm-hmm. between the original very low budget and frankly really quite bad Roger Corman movie. It's, it's, yeah, it's actually really hard to watch. Like it's just kind of boring and stilted. And it, it rather infamously was the result of a bet. Uh, yeah. I forgot who uh, Corman made the bet with. Mm-hmm. Probably his brother. Uh, but uh, the bet was: can, can you shoot a film? Can you shoot all of the footage you need for a single film in like forty-eight hours or something? Yeah. And he banged out this completely dumb uh, little co- quote comedy. It's not funny mm-hmm. about a nerdy Jerry Lewis knockoff character type li- working in a flower shop that finds a man-eating plant and has to feed has that to, man-eating yeah. plant human blood and it keeps getting bigger and bigger until it starts eating people yeah um it's a very silly concept it's a very fanciful concept i can see why eventually they said hey let's make a better version of this because that's actually kind of fun and funny mm-hmm. and they made a great broadway musical i've never seen the musical in theaters i've heard uh the original yeah. cast recording yeah but yeah, I've never seen it staged. But Frank Oz directed a wonderful musical remake of Little Shop of Horrors. And I'm totally going to let you have this. And I really okay. I don't know why I didn't think of it. Uh, starring Rick Moranis, Steve Martin, mm. and... Um, oh, who's the who's the voice of Audrey 2? Uh, Le- Levi Stubbs from The Four Tops. Levi Stubbs mm. uh, as uh, uh, Audrey 2. And, oh, and who plays Audrey? Audrey, Ellen Green. Ellen Green. Mm. <laughs> Absolutely wonderful, dark comedy incredibly catchy tunes mm. what a great film yeah, alan mankin did the music uh, yeah you're, you're gonna be humming all the songs on the way out yeah. they're all these like 1950s style uh some are like really doo-wop some are really gospel uh and they're really really fantastic it, it was a film i was really obsessed with in 1986 mm-hmm. uh f- because uh a lot of people go to the 1980s saying, oh, it was a really great time for, uh, you know, like special effects based blockbusters. And the special effects in this movie are awesome. They're really good. Uh, for, awesome. It was directed by Frank Oz and he was a Muppet performer. So he knew uh, all about puppetry. And he'd already he'd and, already co-directed The Dark Crystal. And I think he'd already directed Muppets Take Manhattan. Or at least oh, it was yeah, around think, the same time. Yeah, he did one of the Muppet films. So and he'd those been are working really with, complicated productions. Yeah, so he knew how to uh, realize this talking plant using puppetry and animatronics. This is 86, so there's no mm. CG in this. And it looks impeccable. Mm. The the lips on the plant match the words. <laughs> they like put all these like little servos in, in the plant's lips. It looks really... The plant who is named Audrey 2, after the Audrey character. Uh, and... What a lot of people don't cite as frequently about the 1980s, besides just sort of this golden time for special effects and kid-friendly fantasy, is how weird a lot of this shit was. It's so weird! Like, how, how did Tim Burton ever be become a thing? Yeah, and then let, let alone him, big. Yeah, and he directed Batman, which is an odd film. It's like, yeah. like a shadowy and off-putting. It's and it's not, unlike anything Tim yeah. Burton had done at that point. He had done these broad... Kooky. Well, he did like Pee Wee's Big Adventure was yeah, his kind of uh, mean spirited comedies. Like that's kind of what he did. Like why would why would you give you know, him this, Batman? I'm glad you did. Don't get me wrong, but uh, that was weird. Could, could could somebody like Crispin Glover have ever become a star in any other era? Uh, you, you can't make something like Repo Man any other time. So I feel like there was a lot of that sort of uh, special effects appeal. Mm-hmm. And a lot of people were drawn to it because, A, the songs are really catchy and it has really awesome special effects. But it's a really strange, bleak, Tales from the Crypt-like story Mm -hmm. 
about this nerdy put upon guy who's impoverished and living Rick in a Moranis basement. chops someone up with an axe in that movie. Oh, it's yeah. dark. Yeah. yeah. And you get to see him throw it piece by piece yeah. into the mouth of the plant. Yeah. And, and the plant ex- laughs while it's eating. And yeah. it's expensive. And every other part of it feels really family friendly just mm-hmm. because of the look and the tone. Uh, my favorite bit in the movie is actually Steve Martin, who has a small role, but he's mm-hmm. a real scene stealer. <laughs> he plays the uh, greaser. Um, uh, no, he plays the... Who plays the dentist then? He's also a dentist. That's what I thought. Okay. I thought yeah, well, we, we, the first time we see him, he's the wild one. He's got the black yeah. leather jacket yeah, yeah, yeah. and the greasy hair. And yeah, yeah. I and forgot for a second. I forgot he was both. Yeah. Uh, he, <laughs> but he's uh, he's a dentist. And the whole thing is he's a dentist because he's a sadist. He likes to hurt people via yeah. the mouth. And so he has an incredible, wonderful, hilarious like villain song doo-wop number mm-hmm. where he talks about how because he was basically a burgeoning serial killer... His his mom or his parents took him aside and said, "Here's what you do: be a dentist, <laughs> and you just get to drilling people's teeth all day, and you'll have the best time ever." I performed that song in like a Broadway review type show we did in high school, <laughs> and it was great. And I got I got convinced them to let me use like live power tools on stage, mm. and I got my hair stuck in a power oh, no! drill. Fortunately, we were able to stop it in time before it like ripped off skin. But oh, yeah. God. Jeez, it was worth it. I I auditioned with that song. Once. <laughs> well, that's a great pick. That's an absolutely great okay, pick. Yeah, I I really love it. it. I don't watch it frequently. Well, you've seen it but so I, many times. I did by a lot now, when I was probably... a kid. So yeah, it's one one I know really well. It's one I really really enjoyed. It's one I've been meaning to revisit. Okay, uh, I'm gonna do a, a hard about face here because mm-hmm. what I actually I have a couple of horror movies on my list, but uh, well, I'm not, I have I'm gonna, many. In fact, yeah, yeah, the horror genre tends to work with remakes actually rather well. Mm-hmm. Um, not very well if they like just repeat the same beats, but if you like sort of update the nightmare quality, or it, you know? or if they're based on such an interesting concept mm-hmm. that it's fine to go back and visit them, like. A Nightmare on Elm Street's an interesting concept. Yeah, could have totally P- made a good remake of that. Pity about that remake, but... Yeah, it was uh, not good. But uh, uh, About Face, because I want to pick a film that I like yours. Mm. I think some people might argue, really? Mm. Uh, is that a remake? But I think it is. I think it is part of a tradition, but I think it is also very clearly commenting on previous films. It's also the most recent film on my list. Okay. Uh, so... Uh, uh, you know, there, there may come a day when this is my number one because I love this movie. Mm-hmm. But for now, let's just let it sit comfortably. First film recommendation, Greta Gerwig's Little Women. Oh, there you go. Uh, well, again, a, a remake? I, or... I, I, I understand. <laughs> I understand. But I'm going to argue it. I'm going to uh, argue it okay. uh, for a couple of reasons. One, again, my philosophy is they made it. Cool. Do they make it again? Yeah. Remake. Done. <laughs> Problem solved. But this one, I think, would qualify anyway. Hmm. Little Women is, of course, uh, a, a classic novel uh, about uh, semi-autobiographical about uh, young women growing up in New England in the 19th century, uh, dealing with uh, life and love and class issues and plagues. And uh, it's a wonderful melodrama. It's a wonderful coming-of-age story. It's a wonderful romance. It's a wonderful ensemble piece. It's a very feminist for the time. It's an excellent work of literature on its own, and I highly recommend it. Um, it's been made into a movie many, many times, and usually really well. The version from the 1930s with Katherine Hepburn is great. The version with uh, Elizabeth Taylor is great. Uh, the version from the 1990s I grew up with, and it was my favorite until Greta Gerwig's came along. And then Greta Gerwig, and this is a film I think, it's a story I think benefits from being told generationally. Okay, Like we have a new 
you know, a, a group of young actors, and wouldn't it be great to tell this classic story with them through a slightly more modern lens? You don't need to make it in the present day or anything, but maybe update the attitude a little bit. Mm-hmm. And Greta Gerwig took that story and not only told it really well with an incredible <laughs> cast, including uh, Saoirse Ronan, uh, Florence Pugh, Oscar nominated for this film, Timothy Chalamet, Emma Watson, uh, Meryl Streep, great cast. Uh, so if, as a straight adaptation, it works really wonderfully. But she does a couple of things that are very clearly intended to sort of fix the text. And under normal circumstances, I would go, how dare you? <laughs> who do you think you are that you would fix a classic novel? I don't care who the filmmaker is. Hmm. Who do you think you... Oh, you're Greta Gerwig. Oh, well, then you're going to nail this well, because you gonna, did. I'm going to listen to you. you. You did. You nailed this. Uh, Little Women does two really bold things, I think, with the text. One, it actually chops up the, the story structure and tells the end of the story, like the first, second half and the first half simultaneously. Mm. So we see the, the young cast as girls, you know, mm. in school. And then we see, you know, the, them grown up mm. as young women. And ordinarily, in when you tell this story in a chronological order, the first half kind of feels kind of top-heavy. And then the second half is full of a lot of plot points that kind of get overshadowed by the first. There's a character who is in love with one of the young uh, uh, protagonists, and then when he grows up, he marries another one. And it always feels kind of weird, like maybe he thought he was settling or something. And it's really hard, even in good adaptations, to sell that plot point. Mm -hmm. But by telling the story of him falling in love with both of them simultaneously, Greta Gerwig is able to draw parallels between here's a relationship that is one-sided and unhealthy and would never have worked. And here's a relationship that is based on something meaningful and that in which both characters are actually going to give as much as they get. Mm. And so it kind of rescues the second half of the story. And then the last thing Greta Gerwig does, or the next major thing anyway, is she changes the ending ever so slightly and turns it into a bit of a meta-narrative about mm. Little Women itself because it is semi-autobiographical. But that's Which the I, kicker. It's my favorite part of the movie. That's too. the kicker. It's semi-autobiographical. Mm. And the stuff that was changed in the book mm-hmm. to help make it sell and popular, it's a bit of a sellout. And it's not really kind of honest to some of the characters. And Greta Gerwig finds the perfect way to have her cake and eat it too. <laughs> in order to give you exactly that incredibly wonderful, super happy Hollywood ending. And also give you the awesome ending in which that other ending is kind of bullshit. <laughs> it's a brilliant, it's, yeah, brilliant, um... brilliant, not only adaptation, but remake of the other stories. Fixing the few, not even that serious, but few problems that they have as narratives. It's great. Yeah. Um, I agree. Uh, I, I liked the the double ending. Mm-hmm. I was reminded of uh, when Dostoevsky wrote two endings to Crime and Punishment. Oh, yeah. Like, Raskolnikov goes to prison in both versions, but in one he's, like, kind of redeemed, and the other one he just sort of dies miserably. Yeah. And you can choose which one you prefer. Yeah. Like, did Was he redeemed and then fell asleep and had a nightmare of being miserable, or did he wake up from the dream and then actually die miserable? Yeah up to you yeah little women kind of uh, works both ways yeah little women addresses something that yeah was really uh if, if there was a weakness to the novel mm-hmm. 
Uh, and that's and that's a big do, if, but if there was, yeah, uh, these would be the things. P- puts a little frosting in the cracks and, yeah. and makes sure it's smooth, smoothed over a little bit. Yeah, it's a brilliant uh, adaptation. Yeah. I, I it did okay, but it kind of got overlooked mostly in awards season, and mm. it kind of kind of people stopped talking about it for a bit. It was on but... a lot of critics' lists, including ours. Oh, both, it was my number one film of the year. Yeah, both you and I, I think I put it further down, but I really yeah. loved it. Um, yeah. Yeah, uh, so it, it got a lot of recognition. Uh, unfortunately, yeah, it was one of those things that was sort of swallowed by the hype machine. Yeah. I don't know where it is now. I don't know. I yeah. know you can get a Blu-ray of it. It exists. It's, Obviously, yeah. you can get it. They, they put a terrible cover out. It's just Saoirse Ronan's head against a, a, it's like a, a light blue background. Scene, yeah. It looks nothing like the story you're going to get. It looks all stark and weird. And the font That's, is like all pointy yeah, and horror-like. It's an, it's yeah, an it's, earthy, homey, family-friendly, mm. sweet, romantic, very funny. Florence Pugh is hilarious. She <laughs> <laughs> completely changes and redeems the character of Amy. Every other version of Amy sucks. She, uh, the, the scene where she's trying to make a plaster cast of her foot <laughs> is bloody hilarious. Yeah, because she's very, uh, she's very big on her own feet. She thinks yeah. she's got the coolest feet in the world. So she's trying to make a plaster cast of her foot and ends up just letting the plaster dry in the bucket. No, so yeah. now she just has a bucket permanently attached to her There's this great foot. scene where she goes up to Laurie, the, the young man played by Timothy Chalamet, who falls in love with uh, Joe, Saoirse Ronan. Uh, and uh, she's obviously clearly in love with him too. Mm. A plot point which comes out of nowhere later in most versions of the story, but here is very nicely foreshadowed because as she's crying because people were just mean to her. Like, mm. everyone was mean to me in school and I had to walk all over here with these dainty feet, which are so much more beautiful than Joe's. <laughs> <laughs> love it. Brilliant, brilliant performance. I love her so much. Mm. Um, all right, let's see the next pick. Uh, let's see. Why, uh, why don't we go with one? That uh, a lot of people were talking about recently because it was remade again. Oh. This is one of those movies that gets remade time and time again. Every uh, 15 years or so. Mm. Uh, I think that's been That doesn't remade. actually narrow it down. Yeah, right? it's been remade maybe five times. Uh, everybody liked the 2018 version of A Star is Born. Oh. Uh, what, during our uh, Only the Best uh, podcast, we've been going through all of the Best Picture nominees. We finally got to talk about, uh, talk about the 1937 A Star is Born. Mm-hmm. I saw them in this order, which is why I'm mentioning it this way. And even that 37 version is kind of a remake of another movie unofficially. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. Long Um, tradition. So, yeah, there there was the original film. There was the 1937 remake. And then they remade it again in 1954 Mm. with Judy Garland. And boy, howdy, is that an awesome movie. That's an incredible motion picture. Mm -hmm. That made my runners up. That movie is amazing. Yeah. I I have... um, I've only seen the three. Mm. I've seen the 2018, the 37. I haven't seen the Streisand version either. Yeah, I haven't. I haven't seen the Streisand version or any like uh, uh, international uh, remakes that Mm. are doubtlessly out there. But yeah, the 1954 version is. uh, It was directed by George Cukor, and it's. I feel there's also some meta narrative going on in there because it's about uh, Judy Garland plays. uh, uh, A singer who makes it big, kind of she breaks late in her career, Mm -hmm. and. We, it's essentially sort of tracing Judy Garland's career arc at the same time. This is 54. Mm-hmm. Uh, she used to be a child star, and in the sexist eyes of the studio system, she had already essentially aged out. Never mind that she's still bloody talented. She's incredibly brilliant. She's a brilliant yeah. singer, brilliant dancer, brilliant actor, and she and, was abused by that system. Yeah, and, she was given drugs to help her perform better. Mm-hmm. It's a, it's a horrible story. What happened? And, to Judy and I, I, Judy Garland is a great big hole in my film education. I've seen oh, yeah? like two or three Judy Garland films. Oh, no kidding. Oh, I and, love uh, her. Yeah. And I've always known she can sing. I've heard her perform. <laughs> I love her singing voice. Uh, 
But it wasn't until I saw Star is Born, it's like, oh gosh, she is actually a brilliant actress as well. Mm -hmm. And the chemistry she has with uh, James Mason, who plays her uh, alcoholic manager, paramour, and eventually Mm. uh, suicidal husband, uh, just the chemistry they have together, that they're these people who are kind of both equally worn down by the world, Mm -hmm. and they are clinging to each other, not out of desperation, but out of a mutual understanding. Yeah, it's weird. Of how hard they've both had She's worn down. She's been trying, because she's like, at that point, she's in her her late 20s, which is like pretty Mm. old to like break into Hollywood if you're trying to be like a young starlet at the time. That's not fair, but that's how it was perceived. Um, So she's been worn down by trying so hard and really not getting very far. Mm. He's been worn down. He's a big movie star, but his star has fallen and his movies don't make money Mm. anymore. And at this point, he is an alcoholic and he's being considered... It's it's no longer, like, worth dealing with him Mm -hmm. to put him in a movie because his movies don't make enough money to be worth the bother. So he's on the way down and he's getting tired just from that. And then through a sheer circumstance... He happens to run into her, see her perform, think, clearly recognizes that she's got more talent than mm. anyone else has noticed, and decides to do everything in his power to make her career as big as possible. Mm. And he is actually willing, after she gets her big break, to step aside. Yeah. There's a the, wonderful scene where she's actually <clears throat> deeply in love with him at this point, and he loves her too, but mm. he also knows, I am incredibly damaged, I am not good for you, I have done what I can to help get you noticed, you got there on your own once someone noticed you because you're incredibly talented. I can back away. I feel like I've done a good deed. But then she convinces him that they should give it a go. And he's just so damaged that mm. their relationship starts to fall apart. And mm. the the how that weathers mm. Judy Garland is just absolutely tragic and poignant. Yeah, there's, um, there's a wonderful scene in the movie Rocky where uh, Rocky and Adrian go on a date. And they go back to his apartment and they are both so desperate for human contact. Oh, I love this scene. It's just like, it's the best moment in Rocky. Forget all the boxing crap. Yeah. <laughs> uh, there's this wonderful scene where they go into Rocky's apartment. It's a, a dingy little dump. He describes mm. it as much. He's got, you know, turtles. And <laughs> not that that makes your place a dump, but, you know, it's, no, it's, just, like, there's, it's, there's, a, it's animals an odd around, place. Yeah. And, and they, they kiss and it's. It's not this sort of like release of romantic tension or this mm. explosion of lust or anything like Which is that. So it's so lonely. They, they they finally realize in this one moment we're not alone, and both of their legs just sort of give out. They just fall to the floor <laughs> in mutual relief. I feel like the nineteen fifty four version of A Star Is Born, like the whole second half of the movie, is that moment elongated. It's like these lonely people are really clinging on to one another, mm-hmm. and it's it's that emotional truth that I'm latching onto. Meanwhile, it's There's, gorgeously photographed. Yeah, I and felt like wonderfully uh, the, felt, it's great. Both the thirty seven version, which was the first uh, color film nominated for Best Picture, incidentally, mm-hmm. and um, and the twenty eighteen version, there was this weird melodramatic tone of self-pity to those stories. I can see what you're saying. Which I feel is absent from the 54 version. The 54 version, even though it's this broad Technicolor musical, Mm. feels the most authentic of the three. Even I, though it, it yeah. visually it's it's the most all, artificial. I think but they're all varying degrees yeah. of good. I think the original is kind of just kind of the first one to really get the story right, but it's no. actually not the most incredible version of it. Um, I actually take some big issue with the ending because I think it kind of does like this one character real dirty, like this grandmother who supported oh, uh, yeah, the star yeah, yeah, who yeah. comes back and has, gives this weird supervillain speech, and it's kind of weird and. Yeah. Just that, <laughs> 
Yeah, but yeah, Blanche, yeah. It's like a baby yeah. Jane moment. Yeah. yeah, but it comes out of nowhere. It's so mm. weird. It doesn't quite work, but it's still pretty good. If it was the mm. only version, we'd be singing its praises, I think. Um, and then again, I missed the Barbra Streisand version, and the Bradley Cooper version is good. Uh-huh. I think it's a really good movie. I think he really proved his chops as a filmmaker. It's a great performance for him. Lady Gaga is amazing. I think Sam Elliott steals the movie as the brother who's like oh, yeah, long-suffering. Yeah. Um, it, it's a really good film, but... It, and it has great music, thank God, because that's after the Streisand version, they made it all about singers as opposed to actors. Mm-hmm. And I think, thank God, the music is good, otherwise the whole thing would have fallen apart. Mm. But that one works pretty well as a straight melodrama. This 1950s version kind of has everything. My yeah, my one yeah. right, I think the only thing that kept it off of my list is, I think it's a little long, but who cares? The version you'll find is like two hours and 45 minutes. It's, 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 it's a, a bit little of a half. longer than it needs to be, but... It, well, they, they, what I appreciate about that running time, though, mm-hmm. is it, it stops the movie and lets you have the big story, but mm-hmm. also the musical numbers. Some of the musical numbers are a They're bit not, of a digression is my only issue. I, I have no issue with that. In okay. a musical, I have no issue with we that. We have both taken issue with Singing in the Rain for that exact reason. Okay, that one is not just a digression. That's a whole other movie. Like, they just... <laughs> okay. Okay, okay. You remember Singing in the Rain, the movie we're in right now? Well, fuck that. We're going to stop it. <laughs> and we're going to start this other movie, which nobody likes. A lot of people like that. A lot of people like that. We're, we're in the dance. minority. I love that movie. Oh, we're in the minority just, on that. Just, you can skip past the Gotta Dance part. Well, let's uh, let's let's do it real hard about this <laughs> again, and let's go back to horror. Okay. Well, I have, I have five horror movies on my okay. list. How many, so one, one, let me count. Hang on. I got right. one, two, three. I have four, and I suspect oh, okay. two of them are probably the same. It's on both entirely of our possible. One no. I actually deliberately left a famous one off. Okay. Because I'm pretty sure one of us was going to talk about. Okay. It. All right. Well, maybe there's only one right. then. But uh, let's go with the film. Now, here's a film. There's, I think there's a there's an unfortunate perspective people have on movie remakes where if they're not better than the original, they're not worthwhile. Well, it's the idea of having to justify the the cost and the time. Yeah, it's like we're gonna make this. Well, if you're gonna take you know take all the time and money it takes to make a feature film, mm-hmm. are you what are you gonna bring something new to the table? See, that, that's the thing. I think something new mm. is is perfectly valid even if it's a lateral move in quality. Okay, but. I know a lot of people saying, like, well, can you name me a remake that's better than the original? I don't think that should be the only criteria mm-hmm. for what makes a remake valid. The thing is, is the new version good? And mm-hmm. does it have a reason to exist? That answer is yes. However, the movie I'm about to uh, uh, praise is a movie that is not only better than the original, it's better than all the other movies that also simultaneously remakes. <laughs> and that is Rob Zombie's Halloween 2. <laughs> Now, well done. Well thank done. You. I'm, I'm proud of you. This I'm is, proud of you for including Halloween. I'm including this. No, this Halloween is on a two. bit of a sliding scale because I would never pretend that Halloween 2, in my eyes, is better than, say, A Star is Born. However, remakes don't exist in a vacuum. They mm-hmm. are remakes. Which is why when I do my runners-up uh, on this uh, uh, Iron List, I'm going to include a couple of films where I just felt like because I hadn't seen both versions, uh-huh. I couldn't fairly argue the point. As well as I could these other films. Okay. So there's a handful of films where I've only seen the, the remake and I've never seen the original. I can't really talk about it in great detail. Um, Rob Zombie's Halloween 2 mm. is... Obviously, it's a sequel to Rob Zombie's Halloween, which is a remake of John Carpenter's Halloween. Rob Zombie very famously took a very different perspective on Halloween mm. and made Michael Myers previously an enigma. And that's an important mm. plot point and a thematic point. And made him the main character. And made him the main character and got to know him and his family as much as possible. To the extent that the 
actual spree killing in John Carpenter's Halloween, which takes up at least two thirds of the movie, mm. uh, is actually about the last act yeah. in Rob Zombie's film. They can, they can essentially condense the Carpenter version mm-hmm. into the final act of. No, that's the interesting. That's yeah. it. Listen, I, I don't particularly like Rob Zombie's Halloween. I think he kind of misses the point. I don't think he entirely gets away with his mm. re-envisioning, but at least he's doing something different, and I can appreciate that. It deserves to exist. That's just not my favorite. Yeah. Halloween 2, on the other hand. That, that's entirely his. He took the ideas in Halloween 2 and the ideas in Halloween 4 and the ideas in Halloween 5, and the ideas in Halloween 6. He took all of these ideas from Halloween 2 through 6, except for 3, because that's a different entity. And he basically just congealed them all together, put, put them all in a little ball, and said, okay... This part where Loomis writes a book and makes money off of it, that's a cool subplot. I'll Mm. put that in my Halloween 2, even though that was only a subplot in Halloween 6. The whole thing where uh, maybe uh, at the end of all of these horrific traumatizing murders, the hero might actually be so damaged that they become a killer themselves. I'm going to take that from Halloween 4, Mm. and I'm going to put that in Halloween 2. We're going to take the whole hospital sequence from Halloween 2. I'm going to make it scarier. (laughs) And he does. I'm not the biggest fan of of the original Halloween 2. It's perfectly okay slasher but i think there's a lot of things it doesn't do very well i think rob zombie beats it out in every possible way Mm. it's imaginatively filmed it takes the franchise in bold directions and and i and i think this is something zombie does not get enough credit for as a filmmaker Mm. the sadness yes (laughs) he understands he he's he gets a lot of flack for being exploitative in his violence Mm. and he is but he never pretends that it has no impact. Mm-hmm. And that's something I appreciate. Even though he will luxuriate over horrifying graphic detail, he knows that it sucks when people die. He knows mm. that it's impactful to experience violence around you. And so the actual scars left over from the original Rob Zombie Halloween are really present and they're still closing. Like people are trying to heal, mm. and then the events of this second film, where it turns out Michael Myers didn't die and works his way back to mm. Haddonfield, and, like and is now a hobo. Well, wouldn't he be? Like it's it's not entirely unreasonable. Mm. Like oh, yeah, where else right. has he been? Do you, th- what, do you think he got a job that whole time and then took a weekend off to come back for where, Halloween too? Where, where does where does Michael Myers get a bedroll? And, I don't know. And a backpack. Is he, he eating, killed like, a guy and stole it? Like eating, <coughs> eating like cans of beans he stole from the local yeah. Piggly Wiggly. Like again, again though, like most again, that's weird to think of in the John Carpenter franchise because hmm. he is the he's, ghost. He's semi supernatural. Yeah, but in Rob Zombie's one, he's very human. He just has this supernatural impact on people because he's existing outside of what we accept as hmm. a nonviolent world in which we live. He. All of the reactions of people from like Brad Dorif and all of these wonderful performances are in Halloween too of people who are really dealing with the grief mm. and the trauma left over from the original film. I think even um, Malcolm McDowell, who is kind of borderline comical, they, they, the cha- they change his character in the second in Rob Zombie's second. I think he changes his character in Rob Zombie's whole thing because he's way more like just willing to sell out. Mm. Like, yeah, I was I was a serial killer's doctor. I will go on the. I will go on the. He goes on TV. He goes on With the talk Weird show, Al, yeah. <laughs> and the other guest is Weird Al Yankovic, and nobody takes him seriously. Like he's become a sad, <laughs> pathetic figure in his own right because ultimately he didn't take the impact of Michael Myers' murders mm. very seriously, did he? 
He it's, used it as an opportunity to improve his own standing rather than to actually be a better doctor. And that bites him in the ass at the end. I think Halloween 2 is really good. And I'm uh, giving it a few extra bonus <laughs> points because I think the movies that it is remaking mm. are not. That's true. Most of the Halloween sequels are pretty bad. Yeah, uh, like 4 is pretty good. I will give 4 a pass. Yeah, 4 three, is pretty good. 3 is just, it's this bizarre thing that's entertaining. Totally sidestepping uh, the rest yeah, of the whether, franchise. Whether there. or not it's good is still arguable, I would say, but yeah. it is entertaining. Uh, yeah, 5 is kind of useless. Mm. 6 is a mess. Uh, Both versions are a yeah, mess. 7 is the only, like, legit good sequel, I would say. Yeah. Uh, but uh, Resurrection is uh, embarrassing. Right, yeah, right. It's so bad. It's fun. I will have a good time watching it, but man, is it stupid. Like, we're going to close the book on Laurie Strode. She's going to cut off Michael Myers' head. One more movie, she falls off an asylum roof. It, like in the first scene of the movie. It's so annoying. It, yeah, oh, it's, God. it's so bad. Yeah. Uh, I, I agree with you in that Halloween 2 is something bold and original. Yeah. And it has a lot of very strange ideas in it. I don't think it coheres necessarily. It's actually pretty bonkers. There's all these like weird attempts at surrealism that don't quite land. Yeah, it it just sort of uh, runs through all these like different little mini movies. They're all really intriguing, but then they all stop a little too abruptly. Hmm. Like there's there's the Halloween uh, Halloween two original Halloween two sequence, the hospital sequence at the beginning. Hmm. Then there's like a morning sequence where everybody's at home and they're kind of sad. Then there's this really intriguing bit where uh, Laurie and her teenage friends go to like the local coffee house. And you think, oh, wait, is this going to be like a Linklater film where they're just hanging out and talking? That's actually one of the best parts of the movie. They, yeah, I, <laughs> I really, love really great. Th- those two bits where they're morning and then where yeah. they're going to the coffee. I just want to see the whole movie be that. No Michael I wish, Myers. I no wish killing. Rob Zombie would just do a straight up character drama. Yeah, like, just, he'd just, be great at he it. He would be great at it. He, like, I think that was, that was really good in The Lords of Salem yeah. as well. All the best scenes are the ones where like people in their 50s are just sitting around having conversations. I think that's arguably his best film lords of salem i i, I think is his best movie yeah. um unpopular opinion perhaps yeah, but it's getting uh, traction but yeah, i think halloween 2 he's nailing a lot of little things without really putting anything around it so he's playing a little too haphazardly with halloween 2 so mm. intriguing absolutely and okay. i recommend you see it but again, I think it's a little bit of a mess. That's fair. Yeah. That's fair. I like. I I kind of like that messiness, but that's totally fair. What's your mm-hmm. next pick? Uh, let's see. Well, if we're going to go with horror remakes, uh, let's see. I, I have two here that are uh, horror remakes of what might be considered sort of like n- national films of the countries they're from. Okay. Uh, oh, I know where you're going with this. Okay. okay. <laughs> I have theories. No, one of the most famous horror movies of all time is F.W. Renault's Nosferatu. Yeah. It comes from Japan. Uh, Japan. Germany. It comes from Germany. <laughs> it's very different. Very different countries. <laughs> There's not a Japanese Nosferatu as far as I know. There's plenty I of Japanese to, I vampire to see movies. It. Uh, and as so, the, the story of the making of Nosferatu is, was wrought with legal troubles. The, they had to change the name from Dracula to Count Orlock because it was a Dra- it's a Dracula story. It's actually very clearly they, a Dracula they story. They couldn't yeah. get like the rights to Bram Stoker's work, so they had to change a lot of things around. But it's still the same story. Yeah. They actually lost a lawsuit over mm. that, and the movie was almost lost as a result. Like mm. they almost like lost every copy of it forever. If if you believe the uh, feature film Shadow of the Vampire, uh, Max Schreck, who played the vampire, was a real vampire. That's a great movie. That's a great movie. Uh, that's not true, but that's a great movie. In the seventies, Werner Herzog, feeling a, a flush of national pride, I suppose, mm-hmm. remade Nosferatu. Uh, it, it's just called Nosferatu the Vampire. Uh, they, he cast his his favorite 
maniac actor. He hated this guy, but just loved working with him. They, I guess they, they they're, made, they're made gold. Together. Yeah, their 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 mutual mania and hatred of each other made for some really good movies. It's like Doctor Frankenstein and Doctor Pretorius. Yeah, like was, they, uh, they work them together to make a great Bride of Frankenstein. So yeah, you got, but they you hate got, each you other. got Herzog. You got Klaus Kinski as as Nosferatu as the vampire. They painted him up all white and gave him these w- big weird ears and this oversized bald head. And he actually bothered to, because he's uh, Werner Herzog, bothered to shoot way out in, like, the Carpathians, essentially where Dracula takes place. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of these abandoned castles. It feels cold and muddy and kind of feels, dank and awful. It feels dead. Yeah. Is yeah. what it is. It feels like you're, it's it's very and, funereal. Uh, like, everything in the in the whole world mm-hmm. is dying. Yeah. No, uh, we look at Dracula and we see the story, the Dracula story. Renfield goes to mm-hmm. Dracula Castle. Dracula comes back to England, starts stalking Mina Harker, etc., etc. It's... Werner Herzog wasn't interested in the structure. He doesn't care about uh, what, a va- what a vampire is going to do or where it goes. He's more interested in looking at the vampire. Mm-hmm. What a weird life that creature <laughs> must live. So he spent a lot of time in these like dead, empty, hollow castles with this weird Klaus Kinski monster obsessing over, was it uh, Isabella Johnny? Yeah. Is- yeah, Isabella Johnny. Uh, so essentially, it's a pretty long movie. It's really, really slow moving. But it's much more of a mood piece than it is about sort of its action or its story. You know, in a funny way, I actually think it plays... Mm. Murnau's version of Nosferatu is is a timeless classic, and I think it's timeless because it feels like a dream. Mm. It feels like a surreal... Because it's a German surrealist film, but it's a surrealist nightmare, like a waking nightmare is what you're watching. Herzog's version feels more like a series of events. It feels more like this is actually happening. There's a naturalistic quality mm-hmm. to even the most gothic and bizarre horrors that he shows you. And there's something about that, which even though it is like kind of like, it's a long movie, like it is kind of slow mm-hmm. on the surface, it's intoxicating yeah. because it takes this caricature of, of, of evil and all of the supernatural things that Count Orlok does and... It pulls you in very naturally and makes it feel like, yeah, that could happen. Mm. And there's something that, like, man, I don't know if a lot of filmmakers would have that power. Like, there's been talk about, like, Robert Eggers, who did The Witch and The Lighthouse, possibly remaking Nosferatu again. And I would love to see that. He'd probably make it really interesting. But I don't, can't imagine him being as naturalistic about it as Herzog, while still allowing the fact that there is fantasy and horror. Yeah, it's yeah. something very. It's a very sad film, I think, but it's a very, very mm. potent one. I love this remake. This is a great remake. Oh, I made my I, runners. I, I, okay, I'm glad. I'm, I, I know it's not held in high regard by too many people. I know there are a lot of people who love it. I'm one of them. A lot of people. A lot of people forget that it exists just because mm. the original, even though it's you know, over 100 years old now, mm. is is it over 100 years old? Now? 22. It came out. Close. Almost 100. Years it's 98 old. years old. It still feels so fresh in everyone's mind. Mm. Um, so a lot of people kind of overlook this and forget that Herzog, who was seen as such an iconoclast, did a big budget horror remake. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but it is great. Yeah. Her- Herzog is not afraid of doing like remakes and sequels. He did mm-hmm. a sequel to Bad Lieutenant, which I is, was, which was is pretty Was it actually a sequel or was it just like another cop movie that they retitled Bad Lieutenant? I, you know what? I don't know the actual story. Although, uh, I, I think it still counts. I, heard but it, I wonder if that was the original intention Herzog had, or did he just want to do a big, crazy, I heard corrupt cop movie? Posited that it was originally just going to be called Port of Call, New Orleans. Yeah. And when it was already in production, somebody said, oh, wait, we have the. Uh, we, we have We bought the name. We have the rights to this other movie. We're going to call it Bad Lieutenant. And. Herzog stepping forward in his infinite wisdom says, we'll just use all three titles. Bad <laughs> Lieutenant, Port of Call, New Orleans. It has two colons, 
Period. <laughs> I have Nicolas Cage and iguanas. Let's go. Um, it's an astonishing film, by the way. I, love, yeah. I like Bad Lieutenant. Uh, okay, I'm actually gonna I'm actually gonna follow this up. That's a great uh, segue to mm. one of my next picks. Uh, I also have a remake of a classic silent uh, horror movie. Okay, on my list. Uh, a lot of people know one of the most enduring images in cinema is the image of Lon Chaney Sr. at his organ in his subterranean lair in The mm. Phantom of the Opera, mm. being unmasked. And you yeah. reveal this horrible, deathly face. And that is incredibly powerful and unforgettable. And that's one of the reasons why a movie which I think is, except for that image, arguably superior, has been almost completely overlooked. The 1943 version of The Phantom of the Opera, starring Claude Rains as the Phantom, mm. is, for my money, like one of the most underrated horror movies of that era. Mm. Um Claude Rains plays a uh, concert... I think he's a violinist in this version. Um, I haven't seen this version. Oh, it's great. It's so good. It's big and broad and technicolor, too. It's gorgeous. (laughs) Um, He plays uh, a a classical musician at the Opera House, and he has been being... He's he's paid really well. It's like this is a big, big gig. And we find out he lives in destitution. Mm. And he lives in destitution because he has been secretly giving all of his money to a young opera ingenue who the movie hints without actually telling us is actually his daughter, not his not the woman oh, he's in love okay. with. And that explains his obsession better and makes him more of a sort of a noble Batman villain, mm. really. Because what happens is he thinks that he can hit the big time. He's composed the greatest opera ever written and he sends it to uh, you know the people who publish these types of music. <laughs> and he's ready to... Uh, uh, you know, he's, he's ready to ascend and take on his next part of his life. He's been fired because he's getting older and he's just not as sharp as he used to be. So this is his chance to make big and finally like prove himself to this young woman. And when he gets there, there's been a miscommunication. Mm. Like the receptionist doesn't know who he is and doesn't care. Meanwhile, in the back room, they're playing his concerto or whatever and saying this is the greatest thing we've ever heard. He hears that he has been dismissed as a nobody while they're playing his music. He assumes that they're stealing his music. He causes a scene and he ends up being disfigured in the scuffle. Mm. And now he is living underneath the opera house. And that's the start of our story. And it's because it, it ultimately it's not just about Christine here. It is also about the villain, mm. which makes it feel like, again, like a great Batman the Animated Series episode. The other cool thing about this one is once we finally get to really settle down with Christine, it makes a gorgeous meal of her love triangle. <laughs> the two, the, the cop and mm. the, and the uh, opera singer who are vying for her affections... They hate each other, but they're both dashing and fun. So they're both trying to stop the Phantom from, like, kidnapping her and killing people at the opera. And it's witty. It's funny. It's scary without being horrifying. Like, he's clearly a bad guy, but it ends up feeling, again, more like a comic book movie. Okay. It's got this wonderful adventurous tone. This almost, like, uh, Robin Hood kind of tone set entirely at an opera house. Like with a super villain and Claude Rains is wonderful. It looks gorgeous. It plays like a dream, and the ending makes me laugh every time in a good way. Like <laughs> okay. it's a really great ending for Christine for her two lovers. It doesn't end too well for the Phantom, but then it never does, does it? Um, but for my money, this is the definitive version of the Phantom of the Opera on screen. Okay. Uh, the, the Joel Schumacher one, bless them, they tried. No, no they uh, didn't. Well, bless them, they, bless them, they, <laughs> they, they, they put it they, on screen. They shot it, yeah. <laughs> bless them, they shot it. 
but and and the silent version should, is always great. Who should we but, get to star in this opera? I know. That the, guy from 300. The guy the silent version is always great, but man, this 1943 version, I mm. love it so. I want people to see yeah. it. I want people to appreciate just how really great it is. So, okay. that's my next pick. What's your next well, one? Excellent. Um let's see. Uh I'm sure why not why not go with another classic horror movie? Um this is a classic horror movie that came out around the same time that Werner Herzog's Nosferatu remake came out. Mm. Uh, and this is considered uh, by, by horror fans to be an Italian national epic. Uh, and I'm talking about Dario, Ge- Dario Argento's Suspiria, which came out in 1977. And in terms of its visuals, you're not going to find a film that is more colorful or visually alluring in terms of its operatic terror. Mm-hmm. A lot of it makes no damn sense. Mm-hmm. Nor does uh, it try to, really. No, it, in fact, it, it's sort of like there's a scene where uh, somebody, uh, one of the, the victims-to-be, a young dancer at this dance academy in Germany, is in her dorm room, and she looks out through the window, which is on the second floor, and she sees in the darkness two eyes really close to her, just on the other side of the glass. Yeah. Like this, this monster is floating out there. It's not a supernatural thing, as far as we know, yet. It's just some thing floating outside her window, and then the killer reaches in through the second-story window. How did that happen? What is going on here? Yeah, it's one of those movies where evil defies the laws of nature. Yeah, just physics is out the window in terms of Suspiria. And and, uh, because of all of its visuals, and because of this nightmarish quality, and mostly because of the Goblin score... uh, One of the great scores. (laughs) Holy uh, cow, what a great score. It's considered a horror classic. Luca Guadagnino remade it in 2018. Mm-hmm. Everyone said, what a horrible idea. How do you remake Suspiria? This is how you remake Suspiria. <laughs> you make it about politics, as it turns out. Uh, yeah, the original Suspiria is, isn't really about much. No, it's it's about witches. That's kind of it. Yeah, yeah it, witches it, and ballet and young girls at boarding school. And that's uh, kind of it, really. But it's not about ballet. That's the thing. It takes place at a dance academy and there's hardly any dancing in it. I guess my point is it's all super, kind of superficial. Yeah, yeah. You know? I, it, like, it's all in there, but what's it about? Not much, really. Evil, I guess. Luca Guadagnino made dancing a really important part of the sequel. In fact, dancing is the means by which uh, they summon evil. The witches summon evil in that movie. It's uh, an assassination technique. It's a way to brainwash people. Mm-hmm. Dancing is really important. There's a really, the scene, uh, the, the most famous scene in the movie where uh, Dakota Johnson is dancing and her movements are manipulating somebody on another room, like on a different floor. Mm-hmm. And like knocking and her into walls yeah, and breaking so, her limbs. Yeah, like her and... limbs are being ripped out behind her and her jaw scene. is being pulled this way and that. Uh, it, yeah, it's, it's really horrendous to watch. Uh, right before that scene, though, uh, Tilda Swinton, in one of three roles, uh, like, touches her hands, and you probably notice there's, like, this little shimmer of light mm-hmm. when she touched her hands and feet. So they, they're using dance as part of their witch magic. So it's kind of important that they're in a, a, mm-hmm. a dance academy. It's also important that the also, original yeah. film, even though it's Italian, is set in Germany, mm-hmm. which Dario Gento does nothing with, really. No, it, it's just, it, it just it's a it, faraway place from Italy. Yeah, yeah exactly. Uh, in fact, Italy has a long tradition of looking at Germany and going, oh, that place could be could be creepy, you know? Like, you look at, like, ancient, like, Roman texts, and they argue that once you get past Germany, yeah, there's animal people and all kinds of stuff out there. But Luca Guadagnino, also Italian filmmaker, said, okay, it's set in Germany, 
what was going on in Germany when Suspiria came out? And it turns out a lot a, of a shit. Lot, a lot was going on in Germany. Yeah. In fact, uh, the, the Dance Academy, you look out the front door and right across the street is the Berlin Wall. Yep. It's right there. And when uh, these uh, young women go missing, because as it turns out, the witches are brainwashing them or killing them, uh, a lot, there's a lot of rumors that they might have run off and joined the Botter-Meinhof group. Yeah. Uh, look up the Botter-Meinhof group at some point. Oh, yeah. At this uh, important That's... group of German rebels that was fighting against government at the time. That's uh, way too big of a topic for us to get into. Yeah, I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not going to go into the Botter-Meinhof group. There's, a, there's movies about the Botter-Meinhof group. But yeah, they mentioned the Botter-Meinhof group. And a, not just the politics of the time and sort of the, the fall of fascism in Germany, but it's also mirrored by this new parallel story that Luca Guadagnino brought in with the old man, who is played also by Tilda Swinton. For reasons I'm still kind of hazy I, on, I, honestly. I think just Tilda Swinton wanted to. I think it was showing may, off a little bit. I, uh, maybe a little bit. I think it, it lent to a weird ethereal quality to the movie to, to have, uh, like... The makeup is excellent. Oh, she good. looks like an old man, but they didn't do anything to her voice, and she still sounds like Tilda Swinton. So it's a little it's really weird. It's a little I kept surreal. It to be a major plot point. It's not. No, it's not. <laughs> she's just, just she's just, just Tilda Swinton playing a man. But that's fine. But it's weird. But it does draw a parallel between the Tilda Swinton old man character and the Tilda Swinton uh, would be high witch character. At the beginning of the movie, she's voted out as being in charge of the witches. She's not the one in charge. She's like second in command, and she kind of resents that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I love that whenever we see the witches at home, they're like sitting around having tea and eating meals and doing these really boring votes at, at the dinner table. But there's, you hear though in their dialogue, mm. they are they are saying things to each other that are indicative of unrest. And mm. what they what we realize has been done here is um, in in Suspiria, the original, it's just one witch living at this school manipulating things and like feeding yeah. off of people's fears and that if that's even what's happening it's close as i knew i can get i think um but uh, luto guaganino says okay there's a bunch of witches they've been living in isolation uh, amongst like again like amongst or right on the edge of a fascist regime uh what's that like and he's saying that like the the insulation there mm-hmm. their isolation has led to their own form of internal uh, corruption and unrest. Yeah. That's really interesting. I But uh, but yeah. uh, the, the the parallel I was going to draw oh, is sorry. that uh the old man character played by Tilda Swinton is uh, a big part of that is that uh he lost his wife uh at the beginning of World War 2 mm. like during the Nazi regime. Yeah. So the sort of rise of I think it's a, a parallel between the rise and the fall of fascism and okay. what it looks like on either end and that might be what the double casting is pointing toward. The, the reason why this movie isn't on my list and I admire this movie mm. a lot and I think if you're going to remake something as bold and individual as Dario Argento's Suspiria, mm. you have to try to match it. Yeah. Not to just redo it, but you have to try to be just as wild and new. Yeah. And I kudos to everyone all around for swinging for the fences. Um, I feel that by grounding the story in more realistic events, mm. you know, and actually trying to add genuine, not like ethereal political underpinnings to it, I, I feel as though that puts the onus on the filmmakers to have those things make more sense than they do here. And ultimately the movie does still want to be hallucinogenic and a little inscrutable. Mm. And I feel that that's maybe not as strong overall 
as the original, or at the very least not as focused, mm. in its lack of focus. <laughs> because they're both very hazy and weird. Right. But the other one isn't trying to do anything focused, mm. whereas the new one is. And I think as a result, it gets a little ungainly, and ultimately mm. doesn't leave me feeling quite as satisfied. But... It's a hell of a movie. It's and gorgeous. It's, it's really gorgeous. Mm. I love it a lot. And I owe this one a rewatch. I've only seen it the one time when uh-huh. it came out. I always want to rewatch because I've heard a lot of people talk about various elements of it. Most of which I saw, but a few I'm like, okay, I wasn't really focusing on that. Mm. I need to rewatch this again and decide for myself once and for all. Maybe not, not once and for all, but mm. really solidify my opinion on it. Okay. Maybe it'll maybe it'll skew better than my original take. Yeah, maybe it'll even be worse. I don't know. But I, I feel like I owe this one to rewatch because there's so much in it. It's it's incredibly yeah. dense. It's yeah. really thoughtful. It's really great looking. Uh, yeah, I, I really like this one. I, I think of it very pleasantly. Uh, in many ways, it's vastly superior to the original, hmm. uh, which I know is a daring thing to say. I disagree, but uh, I totally see your point. Yeah. Uh, so I, I wanted to give it its due. I think everyone needs to revisit this one. Hmm. It, it was sort of scoffed at by a lot of the people who didn't see it, and a lot of people who did. And hmm. uh, I think a, a good reconsideration might bring about a new appreciation. We'll Fair see. enough. Uh, I am going to uh, give the horror genre a miss for a little bit. <laughs> okay. It's not ju- the horror genre has a lot of good remakes in it, but it's not exclusive. I'm going to talk about another... It's a genre film, but I'm going to talk about another film that... Re- it's a remake, and I think it improved upon the original in every way, but mostly a very fundamental way. Okay. I'm speaking of John McTiernan's The Thomas Crown Affair. Ah, you're fond of this one. I love this yeah. movie. I think this movie's really great. Um, the Thomas Crown Affair was a 1960s film, I think 67, 68, mm. uh, and it's the original one starred Steve McQueen and um, uh, Faye Dunaway. Uh, Steve McQueen is a millionaire who is bored and decides to mastermind a series of bank heists to amuse himself. And Faye Dunaway is the investigator trying to take him down. But of course, they're just so sexy. They're so sexy, they cannot deny well, the I'd, sexiness. Well, I'd turn you in, but you're Steve McQueen. Well, I'd refuse, but you're Faye Dunaway. Yeah. It's a film that is very much mired in the stylistic trappings of the 60s. A mm. little bit to its detriment, but it, that that's not my issue mm. with it. My biggest issue with the original Thomas Crown Affair is Thomas Crown's plot. He mm. is a He's a millionaire who decides to amuse himself by stealing money, by going (laughs) through bank heists where people get shot. Like, he doesn't have my sympathies. I see him as an asshole. (laughs) So the film loses me right away. I think it's it's a misstep. And I think John McTiernan's remake, starring Pierce Brosnan and Rene Russo, Hmm. vastly improves upon the original, not just because it is, I think, a more erotic motion picture. I think the sexual chemistry between Brosnan and Russo is just... Singes the frame as you watch it Um, But they also understand That he is in the new one a billionaire He's a Mm. billionaire corporate tycoon It's hard to make him Sympathetic so they decide to make him A romantic and instead Of stealing money he steals Priceless paintings and he becomes like This sort of debonair Art thief Mm. who like steals He has these daring robberies from like New York art museums where helicopters fly in and like people are sliding under doors while gas bombs go off. And it just, it's the kind of shit you imagine like Cary Grant did like before the events of To Catch a Thief Mm -hmm. when he was like still like a jewel thief, you know, par excellence and not a retiree. Like it's just awesome and sexy. And there's this great bit where Dennis Leary plays the cop Mm -hmm. who is sort of the down to earth cop 
who is trying to solve this crime. And he's trying to solve this crime because it looks really bad. <laughs> but what he actually says, he has a lot of great speeches in this because he's a working class guy. He doesn't give a shit. And he has a great speech towards the end of the movie where he's like, here's, here's the thing with this Thomas Crown guy. We know he did it. We just can't nail him for it. Mm. Last week, I, I was dealing with stuff like People who were abusing their families, people who were committing murder, people who were selling, you know, drugs and people were dying from overdoses. If this guy wants to steal a couple of swirls of paint, <laughs> I don't care personally on a personal level. This I have no personal investment in this. Mm. So it's OK to root for Thomas Crown to get away with it, because ultimately the movie argues that it's it's a flighty kind of premise. Mm. And so watching Pierce Brosnan and Rene Russo constantly one-up each other as she tries to prove that he's the great world's greatest art thief and he mm. tries to prove that he's just a dopey corporate tycoon is charming. <laughs> and it's spry, it's, mm. it's wonderfully paced, and again, in a romance, you need sexual chemistry and you can't find much better than mm. Pierce Brosnan and Rene Russo. So I love this movie. Well, I, I think Pierce Brosnan could have sexual chemistry with a lamp. Like, he, he <laughs> he's just that charming. Well, um, but that lamp is played by Rene Russo. You've got yeah. gold. I've I've run hot and cold with Rene Russo. Um, okay. I've, I've liked some of her performances. This wasn't one of them. Actually. Really? I remember seeing this one when it came out back in 99 and being uncharmed. Really? I was expecting the charm. I was expecting a lot of sexual chemistry. I was expecting huh. a lot of banter, and I felt like I didn't get any of it. I felt huh. like it was a lot of lazing about rather than you know exciting heist stuff and uh, or you know sexy romance stuff I, there's I, a part I didn't of the movie the... that's like that but i feel mm. like that's almost like mm. the film offering the audience a sexy vacation like hey you want to go on sexy that's vacation true. There's where they're, where they're just process. laying around on the beach yeah, yeah. and i'm like I, I, yeah i want to do that <laughs> i'm great i'll happily be their third wheel this is a great right. day between that the tailor of panama and Goldeneye, there was a lot of brosnan on a beach oh and, uh, yeah. don't forget uh, was it after after the sunset after the sunset there yeah he did a lot of lazing on the beach <laughs> good for him <laughs> fuck it here's your and, hey sc- mama mia too that's on an italian <laughs> here's your script mr brosnan is there a beach scene no forget it yeah. it takes place in the arctic no what, what, what about this mrs doubtfire is there a beach scene there's a pool scene Okay. All, All right. right, but the next one better have a beat scene. <laughs> <laughs> it's the new John so, Stockwell. So um, I don't, I don't hate the new Thomas Crown yeah. Affair, but I remember being completely unimpressed by it. It's this been is, a while since I've seen it. This is one though. of the ones. Listen, it's not the greatest movie ever, and I'm yeah. not pretending it is. But again, when I look at a remake, hmm. I think it's important to at least factor in the original. Yeah, and this is one where maybe maybe you want to argue that it only hits like a good solid three stars or three and a half stars. Mm-hmm. Fine, I don't think the original works, okay. and I think well, I, I think I everything wrong original, with I think so everything wrong with the original is fixed in the John McTiernan version. Yeah, right. Like everything wrong with it. So this is one where it's a remake that dramatically improves on the original in every way. Uh, well, I'm going to talk about a remake that does nothing to the original. In okay. fact, it's almost a shot-for-shot remake of the original. And I'm you not did. talking about Psycho. Okay, I was about to say. <laughs> I, would have, I would have admired your moxie, but I don't know if I would have agreed with you. Psycho is a really fascinating experiment, and I think everybody ought to see it. It's difficult for me to call it a good film, yeah. but it is a good essay. Yeah. Uh, if, if you're interested in the way film functions and the technicals of film, then you must see it. Okay. If you're interesting for something that's like moving and scary, that's debatable. No, I'm talking about Michael Haneke's Funny Games. I've never seen the remake. 
Uh, well, you've seen the original, so you don't need to. <laughs> but in a way, you kind of do. Uh, because... Uh, they're they're identical. He remade mm. Funny Games uh, shortly after. I, th- I think the original came out in ninety nine. No, it was earlier than that. It was late. Yeah. It was late nineties. It, yeah. it was the ninety. He made he made Funny Games in the nineties, and Funny Games is an incredibly harrowing torture movie. Nineteen ninety seven, and then the and, remake and was, was ten years later. Two was two thousand seven. Okay. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's about uh, these two white-clad tennis-looking uh, bros mm-hmm. who go over to a wealthy family's home. The family is kind and nondescript and uh asks hey can we borrow some eggs oops i broke all those eggs let me borrow some more and they're getting a little bit annoyed and they realize that they keep on asking for small favors and then they realize very quickly that they're not leaving the house nothing we can do will make them leave the house and we're trying to be polite about it Mm. and they're counting on our politeness to just get whatever they want Mm. and once we finally start putting our foot down that's when we reveal that this has actually been a home invasion this whole time yeah so it's, it's a home invasion where they're using sort of the the vagaries and the fineries of polite bourgeois society as an excuse to punish the bourgeois and these two characters kind of supernatural beings in their own way. Yeah. They can break uh, are, the fourth wall. Yeah. There's a, and there, there's a twist at the end, which is like really fourth wall shattering. I don't want to say what it is, but, yeah. uh, but, but watch the movie. Uh, they, they are here to essentially punish these people for pretty much nothing for not being mm. what they think, but they never let us know what they think. Cause they keep changing what their theory mm-hmm. is. And eventually you come to realize, wait a minute, they're not punishing the characters in the movie. They're punishing us. They are they are committing acts they're, of violence uh, because we went to see a movie. With violence in it. And yeah. that's why they're here and they like their job. Mm. They are like these monsters that weave their way in and out of movies. There's an argument to be made that the villains in funny games are the villains in every movie. And yeah, they just, just the abstract version yeah, of those they villains. Haunt the, they haunt the yeah. film. In every film, and when they're and when you're not watching funny games, they like step aside and they become mm. Freddy Krueger. Yeah, and yeah. they become all of these demons that we go to movies to see commit acts of violence specifically. Mm. So, and so why why not just have them do just that? Yeah, just violence. Now, as such, the film becomes a commentary on the way movie violence functions. If the the reason we're seeing this horrendous violence and we're being disturbed by it is because. At some level, we craved it. We asked for that. We paid it's, for the ticket. It's on us now. Yeah, it's uh, your a lot fault. of a lot of people really. It's hate your that, fault uh, that this is happening. The yeah. fact that these people in the film are suffering—that's that's that's on you. you. That's you. You that's want to see you're this because you're here. Uh, it's because you put in yeah. the DVD. Yeah, Michael Haneke is clearly, deliberately trying to confront and implicate the audience in his violence, and I love that wickedness. I've argued now, that uh, the original Funny Games is the best horror movie of the '90s, and I, I stand I'm, by that. I'm not going to argue that. Uh, yeah. A decade later, he remade it almost shot for shot in English with uh, English-speaking actors: it Tim Roth, an, Naomi Watts, Naomi Watts uh, Michael uh, Pitt. Michael Pitt and Brady Corbet are the the two uh, yeah. the two killers. And yeah, it's it's pretty much shot for shot remake. The dialogue is almost identical. Uh, they commit the same acts of violence in the same order, but it's in English now. And you're wondering why why are we seeing this remake if he's not changing anything? Again, we're we're sort of getting this question. How are you justifying your existence? Well, the original is in German. It's made by a German filmmaker. Funny games. Okay. When he remakes it in English, it's not American actors, but it was for an American audience and it was for an American studio. It was made mm-hmm. by American dollars. Yeah, because I think uh, is, Tim uh, Roth is British and Naomi Watts is Australian. Australian, yeah. yeah. But they play American characters. Yeah. Uh, 
he, Michael Haneke is now saying this isn't something really sort of broadly universal. You can't pin this on a German audience. I'm not talking about movie violence in general. Now I'm talking about American movie violence. Mm -hmm. And Americans' relationship with its movie violence is a pretty unhealthy one, if you want to get down and analyze. You love violence so much that Mm -hmm. you insist that it be translated to your language just so you can enjoy it better. Yeah, Uh, well, there's there's that element to it. But when he remakes it in English, he's saying... Okay, I, re- I made it originally, but now I'm saying what, what's really on my mind and how American, your relationship with violence doesn't resemble the true horror of violence. But you still want it, so here it is. Uh, so now he's not just implicating uh, the audience, he's implicating Americans in particular. Mm. And I find that to have a nice political poignancy to it when you see it in English, when you see the remake. Like I said, they're the same movie, but there is that little added dimension when you see it in a different language. Uh, And it does highlight that when you see films in other languages, you are getting other things out of it. There are some uh, plenty of big uh, special effects junkers with bad dialogue that might have sounded beautiful in French Mm. or Spanish. Uh, If if, uh, I think if Valerian had been in French Mm. with French actors, people would have loved that movie. Mm. Uh, But because they cast Americans... Nobody wanted to go see it in America. Yeah. Um, same with uh, Batman and Robin. Watch, yeah. it, watch it in another language. becomes weirdly becomes, more watchable. Watch yeah. it in French and it becomes this amazing like art house French opera version of Batman. Yeah, this weird commentary on oh, excess. Yeah, or watch it in Spanish and it suddenly starts playing like a really great luchador movie. Like it's <laughs> weird, this Batman themed luchador movie. It's so, amazing. So I think in even though you're making the same movie, when you put it in another language, it feels different. Just sure. the... the, the the cadence and the timbre, tambour of the language is going to change. Yep. Um, I'm it's curious. going to change a, the, the final film. I, there's a couple of different like horror remakes in particular mm. I can think of that, that do that very successfully and mm. some that don't. Uh, but I don't know if you put them on your list or not, so I'm not going to jump ahead. Well, I have two other horror films, so we'll, okay. maybe I'll get to those ones next. Maybe. What, what's next on your list? Uh, what's next on my list is a remake, and this is one of the most interesting, not just remakes, but I think reboots of... Uh, of recent years mm-hmm. um and remakes reboots are slightly different i think where a remake is you're telling the same story again mm-hmm. a reboot is you're trying to relaunch a series of films you're booting up a system mm-hmm. not just retelling a story uh so you've got this popular thing and you think you've got this take on it and you can now get a new franchise out of it so when you're gonna redo the planet of the apes series <laughs> Obviously, they tried with Tim Burton's, and that's not mm. the one I'm picking, although I think the movie's a little more interesting than most people do. Uh, but when you did it more recently with uh, uh, the various of the apes films uh, starring... Um, Andy Serkis? Andy Serkis, yeah. thank you, as uh, and, and Caesar. Caesar, uh, uh, achieved through Andy Serkis and a lot of really elaborate motion capture special effects. And none of them won Best Visual Effects, and that is amazing to that, me. That second film, Dawn of the Planet of the Apes, incredible. has some of the best special effects I've ever seen in a movie. Yeah, it's absolutely incredible, and I don't know how it lost. Yeah. It's not. I think the Academy has some weird thing about motion capture where they're afraid it's going to like replace us all, so they don't want to like embrace it too quickly. <laughs> yeah. um, but... When they decided to reboot the Planet of the Apes series, for whatever reason, they decided to remake not Planet of the Apes. They decided to remake Conquest of the Planet of the Apes, the fourth film in the series, which was a prequel, but was itself also a reboot because it took place in a timeline that had been affected by time travel. Mm -hmm. Real fast, 
Here's the original Planet of the Apes timeline. <laughs> I'm going to make this as quick as I possibly can. Right. Planet of the Apes. Astronauts go out into space. They go through what they think is some kind of wormhole, and they end up on a planet overrun by apes instead of people, where people are treated like science experiments. And they're, and they're mute, and they're not intelligent, whereas yeah. the apes can speak and are intelligent. Charlton Heston finds out at the end of the film that he didn't go through some sort of weird portal in space. He actually traveled forward in time after presumably a nuclear apocalypse, and apes have overtaken humans as the dominant life form on the planet, and that's the real twist. Second film, Beneath the Planet of the Apes. Basically, the same thing happens again. Different astronauts kind of land Jim, on the same James planet. James Franciscus happened. Yeah, but, but in the last part of it, they run into a doomsday cult of humans living underneath the planet of the Earth who worship an undetonated nuclear device that could destroy the whole planet. And at the yeah. end of the movie, they do. And it's uh, those humans, by the way, are like psychic mutants now. Weird film. Mm. The third film... Uh, which is Escape from the Planet of the Apes, mm-hmm. is about... Takes place in the present day. Takes place in the present day. On, because, on our Earth. Because in order to escape the exploding planet, three, but although well, one of them dies quickly, but a bunch of apes uh, escape the planet of the apes and go through that wormhole to go through our time in order to save themselves. And that is a really bitter and sad movie, and I love that movie. That movie is great. Like, the first half is this light, sort of fish-out-of-water comedy, mm-hmm. and the uh, the second half is, wait a minute, this these apes spell out doom, I have to poison them. Yeah, like, he, like mankind realizes that they're from a future in which apes take control of everything, so they realize they need to hide these creatures, make sure that they can't tell anybody what's going to happen in the future, mm-hmm. so that they can protect the human race, and they become, like, these martyrs. And it's amazing. It's really dark. But they have a child, mm. and that child is raised in a future which is like an accelerated version of the original Planet of the Apes timeline, where uh, all of the like house pets have gone through a horrible disease. And this, this is such a thin premise. It's a thin premise, but so I, think they, a, a I think dis- they sell it pretty well. A disease has wiped out all dogs and cats. Yeah. And so people begin buying uh, chimpanzees, orangutans, and gorillas as their pets. Yeah, and they and start also re- training them to be butlers. Yeah, they realize that they're more intelligent, they're more dexterous than the pets that they've had before, and they become slaves. Hmm. And it's really horrible. And this super intelligent ape uh, suddenly uh, is thrust into that horrible, nightmarish system after growing up relatively free, and he ends up undermining that system and creating an ape revolution. And that's basically the plot of Rise of the Planet of the Apes. Something that was always on people's minds, starting with the first Planet of the Apes, is how did this happen? Mm -hmm. I don't care how it happened, but that was the question everybody started fixating on. And it's essentially the background behind every one of the Planet of the Apes sequels. Mm -hmm. Uh, well, not beneath, but all the ones beyond that. How mm-hmm. did we get to the future? Where well, and battle. Battle is that. Battle takes place after everything is resolved. But it's, it's again, this sort of fill in the gap. It takes place in the future and how we're going to set up exactly how things set up, were set up in Planet of the Apes. It was this weird, jarring thing to learn that that's what human society evolved into. Yeah. And all of the sequels became really, really preoccupied with explaining every little step of the way. Mm-hmm. And, and that's and- the reason the new... Uh, prequels existed yeah but, but now the 2011 but now rather than we told prequels. the ultimate planet of the apes story and we're now we're trying to just sort of fill in gaps and again mm. some of the movies are really good i think three and four are great uh but uh, they said okay let's instead of starting with planet of the apes let's do it chronologically and let's start with the creation of the first intelligent ape through scientific means mm. and then let's watch that ape as it is intelligent realize that it's being treated differently than other people 
or other intelligent beings mm. and then eventually become a victim of a system that doesn't care about it and then ra- basically raise an army of his fellow kinfolk mm. and go on a rampage and flee and in the process becoming part of it's not solely their fault but accidentally unleashing a disease that starts killing out every human being on the planet imagine if that was the first movie they'd ever done like there'd never been a planet of the apes before mm. what a weird thing to spend a ton of money on what a weird <laughs> narrative where we're gonna have this like hyper intelligent ape who is uh, becomes like a political activist and accidentally ends the world hmm what a weird story. And it actually really works. And it really works because A, Andy Serkis is an incredible motion capture actor. B, the visual effects had caught up with him. And C, I think they actually understood the heart of the story in this version. It's not about humans coming to terms with apes, which is sort of an undercurrent of uh, uh, dawn and war. Mm. But it's actually from the apes' perspective of why this society needs to change and why we're not going to feel too bad if it falls. There's a real loneliness, I think, to this movie that mm. I don't feel in the other ones because the other ones are so much more about action and battle and hatred. Mm. And that's not what this one is about. This one is about... Wh- which one are you talking about depression. in particular? What? Which of Rise. The... Rise, okay. I'm talking about specifically, I think Rise is the best one. I know oh, a lot right. of people love Dawn and War. A mm. lot of people love Dawn and War. I, I'm not one of them. I think Dawn mostly works... Uh, but I think war ultimately is repetitive and it relies too much on just evoking other war movies and not really telling a particularly compelling narrative in and of itself. It's just kind of brutal for the sake of itself. Mm. Um, and I find it, I find that dull, honestly. I, I right. read the visual effects in it, sure, but I find it dull. Dawn, I can watch. There's a lot of stuff I like in Dawn, but I think Rise is the most distinct and interesting of the new trilogy. And I oh, think gosh. it's okay. And I like it a lot. I, it's on mm. my list. I think it's fair. Uh, it's okay. it, it's not a, not a great movie. I think the special effects weren't quite there yet. Like, true, like but it's, you can it's, say that for almost any older true. VFX movie. It's 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 convincing enough. I don't want to get, yeah. get on the special effects. At the time, but, these were these were phenomenal. But I think uh, a, a lot of the conceits in the movie were bending over backwards to match what had already we'd already seen in other apes movies. There were a lot of cute little callbacks. I think the, they uh, I think they. I think the way that you know, like, the the catch all okay. plot point of the smart gas is something out of a Darkwing Duck cartoon. That's the point is it's weird. Yeah, it's... It's weird. It's, well, it's, it's Again, weird imagine it's, if this was really... the first one. Imagine if you'd never seen an Apes movie before and like you had no context for this. We're, How we're weird trying, is this movie? We're trying to take everything like really kind of serious. The tone is really kind of downbeat and yeah. dour and then they add these like Saturday morning cartoon conceits. Like, oh, wait a minute. This, is this <laughs> whimsical? Like, you're not balancing it the same way the 68 film did. And I think... But here's the thing. I think that's its own beast. And okay. I kind of like how they managed to take this really weird concept. And again, try to imagine that this is the first Planet of the Apes story ever told. <laughs> because that's what a reboot is. No. Imagine this is the first. Imagine this was the first idea they came up with. <laughs> How interesting is that? I think it works really, really well yeah. as a remake. Anyway, moving on. Uh, moving on. Um, like I said, I have two more horror movies. I think I'll get through those ones I also first. have two more horror <clears throat> movies. Uh, we'll, we'll talk about this one because this one is surely on your list. And it's David Cronenberg's The Fly. It sure is. Okay. Uh, David Cronenberg's The Fly uh, is a remake of a 1958 uh, thriller. It's essentially just a sci-fi thriller. It's a very, about, very um, Tales from the Crypty. Yeah. And it, it, it you know has Vincent Price. There's a lot of just sort of gallows imagery. Mm-hmm. And the idea is a scientist creates a teleporter machine. A fly gets in the teleporter with him. 
And in the original movie, it replaces a head and an arm with the flies. Yeah. But also... So he comes out human-sized, but with a fly head and a fly arm. And his mind and his, starts deteriorating yeah, because it's got fly it's DNA a fly, in it. fly brain. And yeah, he yeah. starts like going insane and turning into an animal. It's actually uh, really good. People it's don't a, give enough credit. Yeah, it's, it's a really good film. Yeah. Uh, it, the, the, the makeup on the fly head is really scary. And, yeah. uh, and the ending and, is amazing. And yeah, and the, and the whole, help me, help me, that... that is a movie cliche that's burned into eternity. But it, it owns it. Like, it's it really works. great. It works yeah. so good. It, that's an underrated movie. And it's really great. It, it's really, really great, but it is merely a thriller. Um, David Cronenberg made it about disease. Mm-hmm. Uh, in the in the 1986 film, uh, David Cron- Oh, another 86 film, Little Shop, same year. Um, oh, yeah. The the scientist involved is played by Jeff Goldblum in the the remake. Has does the same thing. He's created this teleporter machine. It doesn't quite work at the beginning of the movie. He figures it out uh, while during the course of the film, and when the fly gets in the pod, it sort of splices its DNA into his body, so he comes out looking like a human. Mm-hmm. But now he's got like a little bit of fly in him. Yeah, he's starting to metamorphose, and, like physically yeah, transform and over, slowly. Yeah, over yeah. the course of the film, he like starts like starts developing weird sort of fly like. Yeah. characteristics not just his behavior but also physically yeah he starts and, growing uh, weird thorns out of his body yeah, his and pretty, teeth start yeah, falling pretty soon out. Yeah, his teeth are falling out yeah. he's got all this, like this nasty starts lumpy skin spitting and, up yeah. acid to dissolve yeah. his food outside of his body it's and, really it's disgusting and he figures out what's be. going on but it's not just him sort of sitting there turning into this monster uh, Gina Davis is in the movie as well She's as somebody so he meets at the beginning of the movie they start having an affair at the beginning of the movie and she really loves him and then, but she starts to see him deteriorate, go slowly insane, and we get, we start to see that this is actually a story from her perspective, watching somebody she loves waste away. Uh, very much the way you might watch a loved one slowly succumb to cancer or some other yeah. slowly degenerating disease. And uh, David Cronenberg is very candid about that. He's actually said that's definitely what it's about. A lot of people have called it an AIDS movie, uh, which, which could definitely era. be inter- yeah. interpreted that way. It came out in the mid-80s. Uh, and as such, the movie, although it's re- it's really spectacular to look at, it's really terrifying, that climax is a good God gut-wrenching. Uh, but it, there's this tone of overall uh, a sadness and a very adult kind of sadness to this about what it feels like to face the inevitability of death. It's not a thrilling kind of horror movie. It's a really kind of downbeat horror movie yeah. that keeps you engrossed with a lot of science fiction-y stuff, mm-hmm. but is also appealing to a, a, a deeper sense of tragedy, which well, I, I really, it, really appreciate. I think the thing that mm-hmm. David Cronenberg truly understands in The Fly, besides makeup effects, which, holy shit, amazing makeup effects. Yeah. Um, I think he understands in, this, in a lot of his horror movies, actually, that... Horror connects better when the audience recognizes something. Sometimes yeah. it's a specific phobia that you have or a specific anxiety. Mm. Um, With horror movies, it's a fear. Yeah. Yeah. A lot of people talk about, for example, that um, you know you could see someone... I don't know, get stabbed with like a, whatever, like a big Ginsu knife or something. Mm-hmm. And they don't really scream because mm-hmm. that's all academic to them. Yeah. But then they'll see a scene in a movie where they get people, someone gets stuck with a needle and they know what that's like. We've all had inoculations and we know that that sucks and is unpleasant and it feels weird and invasive. And I mean, a lot of people feel that way. Mm-hmm. And as a result, that makes them flinch, even though that's not really the scary part. So it's what we can connect to. And mm-hmm. I think... David Cronenberg, being largely obsessed for the majority of his career with uh, terrors of the body, mm. 
understands that we all have physical forms. We all have physical bodies and mm-hmm. we're all fascinated and repulsed by the human flesh. You know, we find it, we find it attractive. We find it repulsive when it's doing something weird or with a, with a particular part of the body we don't mm-hmm. understand or like very much. And in the case of the fly, we see what happens when a body starts to die. Yeah. And yeah. even though this is incredibly broadly drawn, um, we all... It's, it was, it's this fantasy conceit. Yeah, it's, it's happening in a particularly like elaborate way. There will come a time in everybody's life when they're going to encounter this through a loved one or you know themselves. And you're going to witness firsthand just what it is like to see the human body waste away mm. gradually and against our will. And... That is, I, I speaking from personal experience, absolutely horrifying. I saw my dad go that way. Mm. So watching this happen in a movie and realizing that even though this is an incredibly elaborate and fanciful sci-fi conceit, that it is being portrayed with such emotional earnestness that it ends up really getting under your skin in a way that no other movie really does. And yeah, this yeah. is a very, this I, I was debating about making this my number one pick. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a an, really it's an excellent film. film. It it's really certainly is. if there's a number two, this is my number two. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, there is a fly two. Uh, there uh, were there were two of the fly twos. The original, the fly had a sequel. Oh, that's right. There was Return yeah. of the Fly. Yeah, which I don't think I've seen. Yeah, um, and then there was the then there was uh, the one with uh, Eric Stoltz. Yeah, which, as the son one, of the fly. That one's, that one's called the fly too, but it yeah. is son of the fly. And um, uh, amazing makeup effects. Yeah, that is that is one of the like grossest, goopiest, slimiest. Barfiest yeah. movies you'll ever see. I wish it was a better film because it's, it's not good. <laughs> it's not good, but like if if you like glop, yeah. boy howdy, <laughs> it's watchable. But like mm. it's it's nowhere near as good as the original mm. and uh, or the original remake rather. Mm. Um, but uh, yeah, but no, the fly is amazing. <laughs> um, okay, actually, why don't you take the next one since right. the fly was on my list as well? All right. Uh, well, and let me go for my last horror film, okay. uh, a remake of a Bergman film. Uh, Bergman made a film called The Virgin Spring. Oh wow, you're going was, here. Uh, you know, I am definitely okay. going here. Uh, Bergman made a film called The Virgin Spring, which is a brutal morality tale about a very Christian family living in, I think it's 15th century Sweden. And their uh, innocent, very uh, Christian daughter goes out and is beset and sexually assaulted by a group of ruffians and and murdered. Uh, Before the parents know what's going on, the ruffians go to their house and ask for shelter for the night. And... The parents, being kind people, say, yes, we'll put you up for the night. They have no idea who these they people have no, are. They yet. don't know who they are. And while they are there, they learn that these men have uh, have assaulted and murdered their daughter. And it becomes uh, a story of what what do you do then? Mm-hmm. What's the moral thing to do then? If you are, if you have been, uh, you know, if your family has been damaged by violence and the perpetrators of the violence are there, <clears throat> is is vengeance even moral? Where does vengeance lie in a biblical sense? Well, and, depending on how you read the Bible, it could be everywhere. Yeah, right? exactly. Yeah. So, um, yeah. and you know, Bergman, who was you know incredibly ambivalent about Christianity because his his father was a minister, but his father was also abusive. You can see that ambivalence toward religion all throughout Bergman's work, and yeah. a lot of it is is incredibly powerful. Watch Winter Light at some point. Mm. Uh, but uh, in this one, it it doesn't really have some sort of solid moral argument but you understand exactly why the all the characters do what they do yeah. except for the attackers they're just well they're they just do a wicked thing yeah they're bad here. uh west craven remade it oh it's so 
uh, in the 1970s yeah. for very little money, giving it this really grimy grindhouse quality. And this is his first feature film, too. Yeah. And Except for arguably, like, allegedly he directed some pornographic films, but he's never revealed what they were. <laughs> People have asked, and he says, I'm not going to tell you. <laughs> no, he's going to watch <laughs> them, <Yeah>. too. <laughs> He's so, not proud of that part of his career for whatever yeah, reason. But is, is your name on them? Of course not. Jesus. Yeah, that's yeah. that's that's what he said. Yeah. Uh, but his first like non-pornographic feature film yeah, was which, Last House on the Left, and which uh, is Last House on the Left came <sighs> before the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, but it has that feel to it, that kind yeah. of gritty, uh, grimy down-to-earth quality. Well, it's interesting. Like, people and, uh, talk about how, like, the torture porn genre emerged from, mm. like, the 9-11 anxieties. Mm. And you can see these, like, post-Vietnam anxieties in a lot of the horror cinema yeah, of the yeah, 70s yeah. where you see not only more graphic violence being portrayed, but also portrayed with a more documentarian eye. And that's mm. something The Last House on the Left has. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, and yeah, the, the, the premise is the same. Mm. Daughter go leaves home... Is, is beset and murdered by ruffians. Ruffians stay with uh, the parents, and the parents have to figure out what the correct course is, how to exact their vengeance, if that's the right thing to do. Yeah. Uh, but in this very 1970s sort of way. Um, it does a really, really good job of giving the characters their due. The, re- uh, the Wes Craven's film. I feel like uh, the, the characters are a little bit richer, and it does have this air of... Hopelessness. It doesn't feel like an exploitation movie. No, in fact, it's actually just hard to watch. Mm. <laughs> I, I agree, I, I but think, I think that's its strength. Sort yeah. of like, sort of like Texas Chainsaw Massacre. That one's hard to watch too. I think Texas. It's Chainsaw, a little crazier. I think Texas Chainsaw uh, Massacre because there's more like. Here's the here's the thing with Last House on the Left when it comes to like the pacing of it. Uh, uh, this girl and her best friend they leave home to go to I think like a rock concert. It's or yeah, something. it's like a Woodstock kind yeah. of thing. Yeah, and uh, the, while they're there, they are enticed by these. Uh, uh, monstrous people to do drugs and they are kidnapped and horrible things happen to them. And that's literally it. There's like no plot to it. Texas Chainsaw has all these ups and downs and reversals and unexpected elements that make it feel a bit more like a movie. Mm. It's still like low budget and it's still very like earthy and real, but it's presented, I think, with a bit more eye to pacing. Whereas... Last House on the Left is girls go out, then there's going to be about an hour and ten minutes of absolute nightmare fuel. Mm. And then maybe at the end, I'm not going to run for you, maybe at the end we'll get some kind of catharsis. But even if we get that catharsis, it's it's not going to be a fun catharsis. No, no it's one not, comes back from the dead. It's it doesn't not help be, anything. It's not going to be cathartic. And yeah. I think that's the point of A, The Virgin Spring, and the right. 1972 remake of Last House on the Left. Mm. is, And this goes to also uh, what Funny Games is all about. This mm. kind of movie violence, while constantly being presented to us as heroic or cathartic is just more violence. Violence is begetting more and more. The Virgin Spring says that something good can come of that, Mm. which is weird for the statement for Bergman to make. Yeah. Whereas Wes Craven says nothing good is coming of this, but more violence is, has justice been served in, in a broad way, perhaps one one might argue, one might argue. Yes. Uh, But Nothing good has ever come from any of this. Here, let me. Here's this is another one where even if I did want to put this on my list, and I'm actually really torn on it okay. because I I know it achieves what Wes Craven was going for. Mm. I also know that it's just straight up unpleasant. <laughs> yeah, uh, that, but, uh, I agree. But I've actually never seen The Virgin Spring, so this is another one where I would put it in that separate runners up pile. Okay, uh, where I don't feel like I have the context to confidently put it on this list. Mm. Let me ask you a question though, because this is the reason why even in a vacuum. Uh-huh. I wouldn't put Last House on the left on here. And it's not just because it's unpleasant. That might be enough of a reason. Mm-hmm. Uh, but does the Virgin Spring have wacky comic relief sheriffs? Uh, maybe. 
Does the Virgin Spring have wacky comic relief sheriffs? Uh, I think it does, yeah. Does it really? No, it doesn't. No, no it doesn't. Wes Craven adds these wacky comic relief <laughs> One of them was played by Martin Cove, like the bad guy karate instructor from Karate Kid. Mm. And it's just like, we know that like, oh, maybe these sheriffs are going to be able to like, mm. you know, save the day if they get there. But then we like, after these women are just being horribly mm. like attacked over and over again they try to run and then they're attacked again and they try to run and they're attacked again and then every once in a while we just cut to like this will these sheriffs be able to hitch a ride oh no a truck full of chickens and it's so it's such a weird calculation it's clearly calculated yeah it's really an attempt to take the edge off of the movie but it's, well, take, it, I think it's the so edge blunt the, and bad. I don't think it works. I think it's it's trying to take the edge off the movie, but I, I think those scenes function as a way of uh, misdirecting the audience a little bit in thinking that this is going to be a little bit more of a conventional narrative. Mm. That this is going to be about, oh, and the cops will show up and the cops will be the good guys. And this this film was made in 1972. Wes Craven's clearly very cynical about what's going on in the world. Mm-hmm. Uh he is, uh, if you watch uh, Wes Craven's movies, you'll see that he's really inter- really interested in intergenerational suffering and justice. Yeah. That's what the Nightmare on Elm Street is all about. What Scream it's, is all about. Scream is all about. Yeah. It's, it, heck, it's what My Soul to Take is all about. I yeah. even saw that one. Uh, the sins of the parents being visited upon the children and vice versa. One could argue Hills of Eyes are about that because it's about like, you know, nuclear testing coming that, back yeah, and haunting that, that, That's about something else. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Um, you could say... Uh, same thing, but via class and something like the people under the stairs. That's good, yeah. Uh, so he he's uh, I think taking the movie away from the cops, the traditional authorities, uh, and putting it a little bit more directly in the moral hands of of the people. I get that. Mm. I think it is so clumsily handled. I think it undermines the film. That, that That's a fair criticism. Okay. But fair enough. And mm. I, this movie is actually, even while a lot of other similar, like violent horror movies were being derided mm. when last house and the Lust came out, came out, this one was actually very well received at the time because it's clear. And to, to at least Wes Craven's credit, it's clear that it's, you're not meant to have fun with it. Mm. It's supposed to be a horror film. And yeah, that I think uh, separates it, and I see your point entirely. Um, so I guess the horror movie that you didn't put on your list that is super obvious mm. is John Carpenter's The Thing. Oh, did John Carpenter remake The Thing? John Carpenter remade The Thing. Did you not know this? The, this yeah. the, 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 he didn't the just remake Village of the Damned. No, he just he also oh. remade uh, and, John Carpenter. And, and, and Rio thing. Bravo. And, uh, and uh, Well, Rio Bravo a couple times. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. Ghost of Mars is Rio Bravo. <laughs> oh, yeah, I guess so. So he remade it. Yeah, he was really, I'm really surprised he never did just an out and out Western with horses and cowboys. Yeah, uh, whatever. Hmm. Anyway, uh, John Carpenter is, of course, one of the great genre filmmakers. Uh, directed a lot of great movies, including uh, Halloween, Assault on Precinct 13, Big Trouble in Little China. Uh, and one of his best loved movies today. Mm-hmm. is The Thing, which is a remake of the Howard Hawks... Uh, well, actually, Howard Hawks didn't direct it, but he kind of mm-hmm. ghost-directed uh, this horror movie called The Thing from Another World. The Thing from Another World is about a bunch of scientists who find an alien uh, spacecraft in the snow. And they're actually in, in, the, in the Arctic. Arctic yeah. In the Arctic, in the original. And they dethaw the creature that they find in su- inside, and the creature starts attacking them, and it's good. It's a really, really good horror movie. Good, Can't take anything good, away from good it. Good monster movie, some smart dialogue. Uh, yeah. Not, not great, but, you know, no. watchable. If you're it, a little kid when you watch it, you might love it. Yeah, it's certainly a well-made motion picture. Mm-hmm. John Carpenter decided to take the basic premise of that, and I think he went more back to the original story, but he took the yeah, basic premise. It was a short story called Who Goes There. He basically took that 
and said, I'm going to make the best horror movie ever made. And he came close. <laughs> uh, John Carpenter's The Thing takes mm. place in Antarctica, uh, in large part because that's more isolated. Mm. And he populated it entirely with men, which normally would seem like a pretty sexist thing to do. But I think in John Carpenter's film, it ends up becoming like a pressure cooker of like stifled masculinity. <laughs> and that adds to the horror because you've got yeah. all of these men who are trying to puff up their chests and they're all going to kill each other. Mm-hmm. Uh, they thaw out the monster, but the monster in this case isn't just a big tall guy who's going to kill you. The monster is a shapeshifter. Mm-hmm. It'll kill you and then it'll take your place. And then look you know, like yeah. and he'll and it can like self divide mm-hmm. and like create more of itself. So the only it's it's uh, very much like that video game Among Us. The only way we know for sure that most of us aren't the thing is because if most of us weren't the thing, it would just kill whoever's left. <laughs> so that's the only way we know some of us are human. It's because we're having this conversation right now. Problem is, how the fuck do we tell who's human? Because people are dying horribly. And the thing in John Carpenter's version has the ability to take on the form of anything it's ever mutated into, even if it's alien. Mm -hmm. So as they start, like, attacking people and trying to, like, kill them and uh, mess with their flesh to see if they're the thing, the thing starts fighting back in weird ways. The defibrillator scene, (laughs) which I will not tell you more about beyond that in case you haven't seen it. Hey, William. The defibrillator scene is one of the most <laughs> incredible moments in any horror movie ever. One of the things I love about John Carpenter... It's, it's a little startling, isn't it's it? It's so fucking scary. I love seeing that with someone who's never seen it before. It's like, you, you blows their mind. Um, the thing with John Carpenter's The Thing is that a lot of people believe that in horror movies, what you don't see is scarier mm. than what you do see. <laughs> and I think in, the, th- the thing says F all that noise No the thing argues That that's because The people who are Making those horror movies Aren't imaginative enough <laughs> Every single thing That another horror movie Wouldn't show you And leave to your imagination Because your imagination Would be scarier John Carpenter shows you And it's scarier Than what you could Have come up with The monsters in this movie Are absolutely Horrifying The set pieces Are incredible The cast is great Mm-hmm. Um, Wilford Brimley gives probably his best performance And that's saying something He's an underappreciated actor I feel um, It's absolutely terrifying In every conceivable way It mm-hmm. is efficient It is almost profound In its sense of desperation And when it came out people hated it It was nominated <laughs> for Razzie Awards It tanked at the box office Nobody cared And everyone said it was a bad remake So Look, all I'm saying, all I'm saying, all I'm saying is that the movies we call bad now, wait. Sometimes, well, I can, I can, sometimes uh, they get discovered. I, I can, I can see the criticism. Mm-hmm. Uh, the the characters it's are the, it's bleak. The characters are all essentially clones of Clint Eastwood. Uh, there, <laughs> there's not a lot of distinguishing between the, all, all of them. In I fact, kind of disagree with that. But I, okay. Well, I think like you get them all outside and they're all wearing the same parka and you can't tell them apart. Wait, you can't tell them apart. It's thematic. Uh, yeah, that's yeah. And uh, also. The, the goop and the gore and the special effects are so terrifying and so slimy and so off-putting. A lot of people were uh, too really frightened to focus on the rest of the movie. Mm-hmm. That overtook everybody's imaginations. And it wasn't until many years had passed and we said, had sort of gotten used to that level of effects in a movie that we began to say, oh, wait, there's a movie underneath all that. Yeah. And there's some artistry. And it's like, 
it's it's uh, John Carpenter's most restrained movie. In some ways, yeah. Uh, just there's less camera movement and editing, and uh, a lot of it's really stark. The score mm. is really stark. Mm-hmm. By Ennio Mor- Morricone. Yeah, Morricone yeah. does part of it. Uh, John Carpenter does part of it. Uh, I think it's been talked of to death. Yeah. Uh, we, we've reached the point where the thing is almost getting overrated. Mm-hmm. It's a great movie. I love it. Yeah. But I don't feel... I think it's just an established classic. I don't classic. feel the need to bring it up the same way I used to. But we're, needs, again, we're talking about posterity no, here. We're giving yeah. our list of the best remakes, and I yeah. think it belongs on that list, even yeah. though maybe it is a cliche to bring it up. So I, I, I put it on my list of runners-up, but I didn't put it on my top ten. Not because I dislike it, just because... Because you assumed I would. Uh, no, I just you said that at the beginning of the podcast. Yeah, I assumed you would, and yeah. Uh, and yeah, I just kind of tired of talking about it. I don't need to talk about the thing anymore. It's we have the thing. Okay. Well, what it's, do you want to talk here. about next then? Ocean's got... Eleven. Okay. On my runner's up. <laughs> on my runner. This is another yeah. one that is definitely yeah. better than the original. I agree with that. Yeah, the original Ocean's Eleven, starring the the Rat Pack. It's mm-hmm. them just Hello cast. Yeah, it's the Rat Pack. It's yeah. Frank Sinatra. Sammy it's, Davis Jr. It's Dean Joey Martin. Bishop. No. Uh, <laughs> Shirley MacLaine. Like yeah, great cast. Great cast. And it's it's just guys sitting around having fun. Most of the movie is just bumming around. That's my thing with that movie. It's a yeah. great premise, but man, a lot of it is lethargic. They just like, wow, the all Rat Pack on screen. What are they going to do? And are they going to do something? This is why I prefer Robin and the Seven Hoods. <laughs> they do stuff in that movie. That's yeah. a fun movie. But yeah, Ocean's Eleven takes place in Vegas. It's about watching the br- the Rat Pack. I said the Rat Pack. The Rat Pack in Las Vegas, <laughs> yeah. and that's kind of it. That's They're all you steal need. something eventually, but yeah. most of the movie is bumming around Vegas. Uh, in two thousand one, Steven Soderbergh took the name and turned it into the single tightest heist movie you've ever fucking seen. Yeah. <laughs> uh, is it a cliched premise? Yes. That's why we do heist movies. We like those cliches. It's also uh, something that we didn't have a lot of at the time, which were all-star movies. Yeah, an all-star heist movie. So Steven Soderbergh uh, decided Ocean, Danny Ocean, played by George Clooney in the movie, is going to assemble a group of 11 to heist a casino. Excuse me, three casinos that all seem to, that all managed to keep all of their money in one vault. Yeah. They're gonna, and they're going to break into this fantasy sci-fi vault that's underneath Las Vegas. But Steven Soderbergh is clever enough to make it look kind of real. Yeah. It works. It, it, it works enough. Like there's, there's an elevator shaft with lasers in it, whatever, but it's fun. Yeah. And again, here's, here's the cast we're working mm-hmm. with. We have George Clooney, obviously mm-hmm. Danny Ocean. We got Brad Pitt. We got Matt Damon. We got Don Cheadle. We got uh, Carl Reiner, Carl yeah. Reiner, Elliot Gould, uh, Scott Kahn. Uh, that meant something at the time. Uh, uh, <laughs> Casey, Casey Affleck, Affleck that which meant something actually at the time. didn't mean anything at the time. Then it meant something later, and now it means less. Uh, <laughs> but uh, this great all-star cast. And then on top of that, we also have Julia Roberts, and we also have Andy Garcia. These are like part of the you. 11. It's huge. I, I like it. The, if, in the credits, it says, introducing Julia Roberts. It was very cute. That, they got a big chuckle on the Cute, cute yeah. little joke. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, it, it's just about the uh, the mechanics of setting up this heist, but each of the characters communicates a lot in the little t- screen time they're given. There's mm. a lot of them, so they don't all... Like, Brad Pitt and George Clooney have a lot of dialogue. All the other supporting characters get bits to do. Yeah. So we understand who this entire team is. Uh, Scott Kahn and, and Casey Affleck play bickering brothers who are constantly like making bets and mm-hmm. and ragging on each other. And that becomes a plot point later on. Carl Reiner is an old guy who thinks his best years as a criminal are behind him and isn't sure if he can do this anymore. Yeah. And will he be able to? Yeah. And he has an excellent moment great. where he gets yeah. to cuss out George Clooney. Uh, one of my favorite little running gags is uh, Brad Pitt's character, Rusty, 
you might not notice this the first time you watch it, but he's always eating. Every single scene. Every single scene he's eating something. And in the very last scene, he's eating a burger. And it's a parallel to the first scene. It's actually the same shot. Mm-hmm. And he's eating it. And he gets to, he puts down puts down his food and just goes... He's a little like acid burp. He's so full <laughs> after like, eating the whole movie. It's like he's, he's finally full after eating the whole movie. Cute film. Uh, g- golly, it is just a glittering, sparkling, mm. energetic bit of exhilarating fluff. It's everything I wish the original was. It's, I do yeah. love this movie a lot. My only problem with this movie, mm. and it's my only problem with it, this is a really fun movie. I like this movie a lot. It absolutely belongs on, if not on the list, at least on Runners Up, and it is a Runners Up All movie. Right. Um, is It's a heist movie where nothing goes wrong. That's fine. It's fine, but I find it a little... Uh, it's it's L- usually little, little things the, go wrong. Eventually, things, yeah, yeah, it looks, yeah, it looks like things are going wrong, but then they, they repurpose don't. some of those things. The, yeah. I actually, in a way, I kind of prefer at least as a heist movie. Maybe not as a work of pure Hollywood entertainment, but mm. as a heist movie, I think Soderbergh's later film Logan Lucky is a little stronger. Mm. There's a bit in Logan Lucky Logan where Logan Lucky also very good, very very good, mm. good double feature, wonderful double feature. But um, um, uh, Channing Tatum and Adam. It's Warlock. Adam Driver. Driver. <laughs> Adam Warlock. I don't know. He'd be good Adam that's Warlock. A, that's a Marvel. He would make a good Adam Warlock. Yeah, done. Cast him as Adam Warlock. You're welcome. Um, but uh, uh, Adam Driver and Channing Tatum play brothers who are going to rob like a racetrack. Mm. And it's great. It's like but, a bl- blue collar Ocean's Eleven. But there's a fun little meta bit in it where we see Channing Tatum's plan. And it's just taped up on his refrigerator. Mm. And it's like a 12 point plan. And it's just do this, do this, do this. And two of the bullet points are everything goes wrong. Mm. <laughs> He's planned for everything to go wrong. Mm. That's part of the plan because you know it has to. Right. And Ocean's... And that, so it's basically the structure of a heist movie just taped on a fridge. Right. Here, nothing goes well, wrong. There's a moment where it seems like it might, but it doesn't. Well, and there's Logan something about the, it that's just a little... It's fun to hang out with, but it doesn't feel like as great a movie to me as it could. Uh, Maybe if they were challenged Logan, a bit more, I'd be more impressed. Logan Lucky is clearly the, like... A weird sort of meta narrative because yeah. you're kind of remaking Ocean's Eleven at that very, point. Very, very much so. Yeah. And there's there's a completely bizarre scene where it says, "Go to the woods and wait for the bear." And, uh, <laughs> that might be my favorite scene in Steven Soderbergh's career. Yeah. And and uh, so the the two main characters are out in the woods, like in this glade, waiting for the bear to show up. And there it is. It's a guy in a bear suit holding a briefcase. And he hands and them a briefcase. Doesn't say anything, just walks up to them, p- puts the briefcase down on the ground. I don't think he even hands it to them. Starts to walk away, and in this clever bit of filmmaking, fades into nothingness, just vanishes. <laughs> There's no it's other... This ma- weird supernatural bit. So- There's nothing else in the movie like yeah. it. It's so great. I love that. <laughs> anyway, Ocean's Eleven is a lark. Mm-hmm. I like it a lot. Um, I actually never saw Ocean's 13. I thought Ocean's 12 was fun, but bloated. Yeah, it's that one's a little... They wrote it too quickly. Like, they didn't no. think it through in this the, the same tight, snappy sort of it's way. It's a bit slapdash, yeah. Uh, Ocean's 13 gets back to that a little bit. Okay. Uh, in that it's a little tighter. And Ocean's 8 is back to form. I think, I think Ocean's 8 is all, really It's almost as good as Ocean's 11, if yeah. not as good. It's, yeah, those it's, are both really good movies. I think Ocean's 8 really mm. should have gotten a bit more attention. And Anne Hathaway should have gotten an Oscar nomination for that <laughs> She's movie. so great at She's that. amazing mm. in that film. Uh, okay, let's move oh, yeah. on. Uh, you picked a crime movie. So I'll pick a crime movie. All right. Uh, this is a movie that a lot of people forget is a remake, but like that's a, true of a lot of remakes these that's, days. That's yeah. very very true. Uh, but I think this is also, even though this is also another one where it had been previously adapted, uh-huh. nobody cares about the other adaptations, and the reason why is because the Maltese Falcon nailed it. Yeah, 
So the Maltese Falcon... We've talked about this one a couple times. Well, as well we should have, based on a novel by Dashiell Hammett, uh, is the story of Sam Spade, played by Humphrey Bogart. Uh, he is a tough-as-nails, rough-and-tumble private detective... Who sits in his office a lot. Yep. Doesn't really do a lot. <laughs> no. uh, and, uh, well, he, he's he's in the middle of, at the beginning of the story, his partner has been murdered. Mm. And he's trying to figure out what the hell to do with that. And then this whole other movie stumbles into his office. And someone's just like, hey, yeah, I'm looking for this Maltese Falcon thing. And so is this guy. And so is this guy. And we're all willing to betray and kill each other for it. You want to get involved? And Sam's like, yeah, I got a Friday open. Let's do this thing. Mm -hmm. And so he just ends up immersed in this incredibly intricate narrative of, uh, who is it? It's Sidney Greenstreet. It's uh, uh, Peter Peter Laurie. And is it it Mary Astor? Oh, I forgot. Plays, uh, uh, hold on. I want to make sure I get it right. (laughs) Okay. Uh, Yeah, it's Mary Astor. Okay. Um, And uh, yeah, they're all after this thing called the Maltese Falcon. What is the Maltese Falcon? Mm-hmm. Well, it's a MacGuffin is what it fucking is. It's all this thing that they want and they will kill for. It's this rare antiquity that is worth a fortune. And it's basically just Humphrey Bogart trying to figure out what the fuck everyone is talking about. Mm-hmm. Break through all of their greed or whatever because he doesn't care. He doesn't care about money. He cares about just living his life free from interruption. And they keep interrupting him. And he eventually just screws them all over because he can. It's one of the great film noirs. I believe we highlighted it on our list of the best film noirs and what I think was our first episode of The Iron List. Yeah. Have you ever seen the original adaptation? Uh, I think it's called Satan is a Lady. No. It sucks ass. <laughs> like, it's a bad movie. It is a bad movie. It is it does not work. Mm. It's directed by William Dieterly. It's actually got like it's got like Betty Davis in it, like before she was big, but um and it's kind of it's kind of more of a comedy. It's like it's just stilted. It's not the worst idea in the world, but it's stilted Mm. and dry. And it feels like an episode of a bad private detective show mm. that just happened to have the basic plot of the Maltese Falcon. And what you realize is that plot doesn't mean a lot. Mm. There are a lot of movies with bad plots that are great. And there's mm. a lot of movies with good plots that don't work. And what matters is attitude. What matters <laughs> is skill. What matters mm. is tone and pacing. And so the exact same story mm. about just trying to get this MacGuffin, will we get this MacGuffin, damn this MacGuffin, if you just sell it with all of your might, you can get the greatest damn story ever. Mm. And if you don't, it's just this boring thing about people just talking in offices about Maltese Falcons. And whereas in the John Huston version, it's all about like one upsmanship and like putting one over on people you don't like and betrayal and, and murder. And it's just all of us. It's all tone. Mm. That's all the Maltese Falcon is. It's no, the plot mm. isn't that great. Or, or it's just another movie about a bunch of people talking in an office. You don't I, like this I, one very I watched much. the Maltese Falcon, uh, the, this version, the Humphrey Bogart yeah. version, when I was in college, and maybe I was immature. Uh, maybe have you I, maybe I was. Have you never watched it, it I haven't rewatched it in a while, oh, but okay. uh, but maybe there's something into it. Like uh, I also watched uh, The Searchers at the same time, and I hated that one too. And now you like and it. I rewatched it recently, and I think it's actually a brilliant movie. I think you owe uh, this so one to rewatch. I need to go back because my memories of this one are just completely foul. Mm-hmm. I, I felt well, the, the, the 
characters, uh, I felt that especially uh, the Sam Spade character mm-hmm. to be really off-putting in this this really toxic sort of way. Well, it's about that. Where though. he's just sort of sitting back and the movie's happening in front of him and yet we're supposed, the movie is still framing him in such a way that he's somehow masterminding a lot of this stuff. Well, it's he's, he's smarter than the other people in the room. Mm-hmm. But he's not their superior or anything. Mm. It's basically, it's it's almost like a Coen Brothers movie where just everyone's trying to beat each other. Yeah. And I think you're kind of looking at it through the lens of something a bit more conventional and not looking at it through the lens of just bitter noir. Yeah. Where it's very cynical about and, uh, all of the characters, even the one who is set up to be the most... You know, forthright and well, and protagonist. Well, I, I wasn't trying. I wasn't looking for heroism. I had seen plenty of noir films at that point, and mm-hmm. I understood that you know, cynicism and bitterness was a part of this. And I actually enjoy that part of film noir. Yeah, but yeah, there was something about this where I felt like the inaction and the the dullness and the pedestrian elements were something that the filmmaker didn't intend, mm. and it became sort of this this rather uninteresting and unintriguing story about people mm. who are essentially doing not much of anything and the big reveal doesn't mean much of anything. Here, here's, uh, here, okay. And, and I understand I'm, I'm talking in broad terms here well, because a, it's been a long time since I've seen it. I think here's what I'm picking but, up on. So I'm only here. going on like memories from like if 20 I were to, years ago. If I were to hazard a guess and, I'm, mm. I'm, and I really want you to rewatch this someday, mm. please do. Was it nominated for Best Picture? I don't think it was. I don't, I'm, I don't think we're going to get this. I don't yeah. the best. Um, here's, here's what I think we're seeing differently here. I am looking at an intricate set of tightly wound gears mm. with a magnifying glass and going, wow, it's so fascinating how all of these things come together and look at how beautifully sculpted that gear is and how incredibly it interlocks mm. with all the other things. It just, it, it ticks beautifully. And you are looking at the other side of it and going, that watch tells time. Like, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you're, you're kind of, it's just, you're, you're only kind of focusing on the bit. What, that what, a, yeah, what, be, an, what an ugly watch. Which yeah. you can see it as being very conventional. Mm. And I can appreciate that. But I think if you look at it through the lens of you know, just a hard-boiled set of, like, tough guy stuff. Mm. And how just incredibly exquisitely constructed that thing is. Mm. I think you can appreciate the construction even if the thing itself isn't your cup of tea. Okay. So I hope you check it out sometime. I, Again. I, I, I'll give it another chance because yeah. I... This is often considered a, one of those big cinema classics, mm. uh, like a linchpin in classic Hollywood, and I don't have pleasant memories of watching it. And Fair enough. Uh, when I was 19 years old, maybe I wasn't the most astute critic, so uh, maybe mm. I, I owe, it, owe it another one. Or maybe it's not your taste, and that's mm. fine, too. Let's move on. We got, mm. I think, two more? I have two more on my list. Same. Uh, and gonna, only one overlap so far. That's incredible. Yeah, I'm going to go with a remake of a Douglas Sirk movie. Ah. Uh, this is going to be... Uh, Rainer Werner Fassbinder's Ali Fear Eats the Soul. I haven't seen this one. Uh, this one was a remake of Douglas Sirk's All That Heaven Allows. All That Heaven Allows is a film about a, a widow who falls in love with a much younger gardener, played by the sexy Rock Hudson in sexy flannels, and he's cutting wood and stuff. And it's about how uh, how relationships are allowed to evolve beyond spinsterhood, which was... Uh, a, you know, a, a big mark on uh, female kind back in the 1950s when it was made. It was considered really daring at the time. Uh, it's a great movie. I encourage you to see it. It's gorgeous to look at. It's got some of the most exciting color you'll see in any kind of movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's also about sex and technology and television is the <laughs> monster in this movie. Uh, it's really, really good. Uh, it's a broad melodrama. That's what Douglas Sirk dealt with. Fossbinder made a melodrama and took out 
all the melodrama. Mm. He took that same setup. It's about a woman in her 60s who is a, a cleaning woman for an apartment building. And she uh, is seen as incredibly dowdy and people don't even look at her. She goes into a bar and everyone kind of stares. She doesn't belong out in public where fun things exist. And she ends up starting an affair with a man like about 20 years her, uh, her junior, a Moroccan immigrant. Uh, and their uh, and their mutual passion for one another, how they kind of found one another in a space where uh, movies usually don't observe relationships happening. Uh, it, it's a re- relationship between an older white woman and a younger black man and how a general malaise begins to form around them in the people that see it uh, occurring. It takes place mostly in kind of dour, dusty rooms, in small gestures, in little conversations. It's not about the big sweeping romance of it, like we've talked about a couple times on this episode already, about the relief of finding another lonely soul and how that can not only give you a sense of relief and passion and love, but also something to be a little bit angry about. Mm. That there's something in your life now worth defending and getting whipped up into a frenzy about. Yeah. Uh, I appreciate and, that. Like, and you, I feel you, like... Uh, now you've got something to lose. Exactly. Yeah, so yeah. so there's a lot of wrath in this movie. There's a lot of discomfort. There's a lot of anger. And I think it's all well-founded uh, in in the pursuit of this... Ro- this I, I don't want to call it unconventional romance, just un- typically unfilmed romance that everybody around them sees as an unconventional romance. Uh, this one isn't talked about a lot outside of like film schools film students know ollie fear eats the soul uh and i wish it would spread further because it's really enjoyable it's really kitchen sink emotion is something i think anybody could get behind Mm. um i I encourage you to see it uh it's Uh, it's it's just if you have hbo or the criterion channel you can watch it today yeah uh, it's pretty easy to find uh please see ollie fear it's the soul it's, i've heard yeah, i've this, heard endlessly good things great just, great i've never got cinema classic if you can watch it back to back with the original it actually hmm. strengthens both of them oh that's that's it, that's cool. yeah it's because they they they're it's the same story but they almost served as like tonal counterpoints yeah it's interesting i actually my next pick is actually something that is also a tonal counterpoint to the original okay. where ultimately they tell the same story but the conclusion that they come to i think is different oh uh, and that is Martin Scorsese's Silence, which a lot of people don't Ooh, realize is okay. a remake. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Good choice. Yeah. Okay. Silence is based on a novel uh, by, uh, I hope I'm pronouncing this right, uh, Shusako Endo. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it was originally filmed in 1971 by director Masahiro Shinoda. Mm-hmm. It is the story of uh, two priests uh, who travel to Japan to investigate the disappearance of a member of their order. Mm-hmm. Uh, Japan at the time uh, has outlawed Christianity and people who are adherents to the Christian faith are forced to hide their faith Mm. as much as humanly possible. And so when these two priests arrive in Japan, there are people in the small towns that they visit who are very excited. Finally, someone to actually like take our confession and read to us from the Bible and like help us with our faith. And guide us in our faith the way that we ask our religious leaders to do. And at first they're very content to do this. And then over time they realize that this is not 
this is not an easy task because the actual oppression of Christianity at the time mm -hmm. was quite severe and there were people who would be tortured and they would say like you just you deny your faith mm. we'll let you go no worries and if not you have to step on this picture of Christ yeah which is obviously not something you're supposed to do and it's and again there are people who will go to the ends of the earth for their faith even if it kills them or potentially and this is where the crisis of faith comes in kills other people mm. and that's where this sort of psychological torture element comes in where these priests who believe in their faith and are trying to do the right thing are now being asked to do what is dogmatically the wrong thing in order to do what is morally the right thing mm. and it is a t tale of absolute sort of inner torment yeah yeah it's, it's a really great movie it's, it is it asks a lot of hard questions about uh, the morality of faith mm -hmm. uh scorsese is clearly uh you know interested in this sort of thing yeah he's told many movies mm -hmm. about it kundun uh even last temptation of christ I, I think if silence had been like a bigger hit or a bigger mm -hmm. award winner he would have made more movies about the morals of catholicism mm -hmm. uh, he's a moralistic he, filmmaker yeah, the even, irishman is a moralistic mm -hmm. movie These he even are said that moralistic if, movies. he even said that at, when silence was being made he wants to make nothing but religious films from now on i was like fine yeah. fine do what you want Scorsese. yeah you're great wherever you go i'm willing to follow but like you a lot of people sort of ignore <clears> the fact that a lot of his movies <clears> that seem to celebrate criminality mm. are ultimately moral tales the characters in goodfellas do not end well no in fact see the irishman yeah exactly. <laughs> these are stories of, we'll of see how moral destitution yeah. basically and so yeah you might achieve a certain amount of superficial success in your life but in the end you are hollow and you die alone and mm -hmm. lonely and probably if you're a religious person not saved and that is something that silence really wrestles with is this idea of Christian persecution, what it actually means. And it's not about, you know, being asked to live in a society and to make uh, small concessions here and there. There are actually periods of time throughout the world, and this is not exclusive to Christianity. And I, I myself am, do not consider myself Christian, but I also can appreciate that religious persecution is sadly common mm -hmm. to this day in a lot of places in the world and throughout history rampant and it, this is a story of that kind of internal struggle the reason why this is on my list isn't just because it's incredible it's mm -hmm. a great motion picture andrew garfield and adam driver are amazing in it the whole uh, uh japanese cast is incredible it's gorgeously filmed mm -hmm. Oh, who played the, the scoundrel character? Oh, look him um, up. He yeah, was gonna, amazing. He's really, really good. Um, but as a remake, if you look at the original film, which is also a good movie, but it's the same basic story, except at the end, you realize that the filmmaker, uh, Masahiro Shinoda, and possibly the book as well. I've heard the book is a little bit more bitter. I haven't read it. Mm. Um, you realize that they don't actually have a lot of faith in the priests. Yeah. They ultimately, I think the original film ultimately argues that Christianity is, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Christianity is an excuse or Christianity is mm -hmm. something that is easily cast aside and our evil natures as yeah. just human beings can just be freed from the confines of our belief in decency. And Martin Scorsese, I don't think, f believes that for one second. And his version ultimately is also bitter, also mm. sad, but has a little bit it, more it faith was, in uh, human spirit, I think. Uh, it was... 
and a little bit more faith in religion yeah. too. What were you saying? Uh, Shinya Tsukamoto. Yeah. Incredible. Incredible yeah. actor. Uh, uh, and, and director. Yeah. He did uh, Tetsuo the Iron Man. Oh, I didn't realize he did yeah. Tetsuo the Iron Man. That's awesome. Um, so, yeah, they're both good versions, but one is ultimately feels deeply cynical about religion and the human mm-hmm. spirit, and the other feels... Like more, uh, more appropriately ambivalent, perhaps? No, I don't know about ambivalent. Mm-hmm. I, think it's, I think it understands that life is complicated, but our faith, and if you want to say faith in God, or at least our faith in decency, uh, can shine through. Mm-hmm. even if it doesn't seem to, and it matters. And I think that ultimately puts Scorsese's film a little over the edge. Okay. Uh, so it's an incredible motion picture. It didn't get uh, enough of a push, I think, when it came out and kind of fell aside, and a lot of people didn't see it, but it was, it's really great. It's, re- it's really long. It's a religious film, and it's a bummer. It's a, yeah. t- a tough sell even during awards season. Exactly. So a lot, of, And because it didn't get a lot of awards nominations, mm-hmm. a lot of people didn't make the extra effort to mm-hmm. go. It's worth it. It's incredible. It's it's yeah, absolutely yeah. great. All right, so we're down to our number one. My, uh, my number one, uh, I feel like my number one is a bit of a cheat ah. because uh, master filmmaker Yasujiro Ozu ma- remade one of his own movies. That is a cheat. <laughs> no, it's fine. It's fine. It's fine. Um, it's totally fine. A lot, of, it, a lot of filmmakers yeah. remake their own movies. People don't realize this. Yeah. Well, you, you had two. Did I? Good Hanukkah. Oh yeah, Hanukkah remade yeah, one of his own movies. Hitchcock so, yeah. remade his own movies. Like a lot of mm-hmm. filmmakers, people are like, "Oh, well, when was last like Zack Snyder's remaking Justice League? When was the last time a filmmaker did that?" And I put like a list of like a dozen. Yeah. Like, <laughs> the, the oh, okay. Well, are... it is weird though. It's still weird, but let's not pretend it, it never happens. Yeah. It actually happens quite uh, a bit. Ozu is uh, one of the greats. Like, if if you watch movies long enough, you'll eventually wander through the gate that is Ozu mm-hmm. and find things like Tokyo Story. Uh, he didn't become big in a, in the United States until like the seventies, even though he was making movies since the thirties, just because his movies uh, weren't imported very often. They weren't imported because they were considered too Japanese. They were yeah. very much about uh, Japanese concerns and the Japanese national character, et cetera, et cetera, that they didn't bother importing a lot of Ozu films. You watch Tokyo story. Anybody can watch Tokyo story. It was amazing. Yeah, Tokyo really, Story is literally one of the best of all movies. It's, it it's just, typically is like near the top of like the sight and sound pole yeah, of the best it's, movies it's ever It's always made. And in we the watch top it and realize why. It's really yeah, great. It's just in, in terms of its uh, uh, steadfast camera work. Uh, Ozu is known for that kind of slow-moving, quiet steadfastness. Uh, he will... Uh, the way he constructs a scene is usually uh, very... Uh, down to earth, very literally. In fact, he mm. likes to keep his cameras low to the ground, like where people are sitting rather than at standing level. And uh, he doesn't move his camera a lot. It's a lot of static shots. Uh, he tends to frame his, his frames with like a lot of frames within them, like square mm-hmm. doors and, and mats and windows. Like a multi-plane. Yeah. So, so it's all this like very uh, diorama kind of look to a lot of his, his shots where it, where very little is happening. The conversation isn't about the conversation. It's about the things people aren't saying to one another. The, the slow, the, the little resentments, the little emotional conflicts that are coming up between people while they're just talking about what they're having for breakfast. Yeah. He's a brilliant filmmaker. Yeah. I, agree. Uh, I haven't seen all his films, but everything okay. I've seen is brilliant. Um, he made a movie in the fifties, uh, in 1959 called floating weeds, which is a remake of his film, a story of floating weeds from 1934 floating. <laughs> Sorry, it's just funny that the yeah. titles are so close. Yeah, a well, story of floating weeds. Forget the story. Yeah. This is just the weeds. Yeah, the, the original was called a story of floating weeds. The remake was called floating weeds. Just and clear uh, out the clutter. You know what? You know. You know what? Listen. You know what? Uh, you know what sounds better? The Facebook. 
<laughs> drop the thought. It's cleaner. Yeah. So uh, drop the story of. It's cleaner. Floating weeds. <laughs> floating, floating weeds. Justin Timberlake throughout history. Drop the th- drop the story of. <laughs> Justin Timberlake was right there next to Ozu <laughs> in the late fifties, saying, "Here's how you make your movie better." Yeah. Uh, floating weeds <laughs> is a, a, a slang term in Japan for itinerant actors, and this is about a traveling acting troupe that visits a small town. They're not a, a really well-known acting troupe. But everybody in the small town is really happy to see them. In fact, there's this really, uh, it, it almost seems really bizarre. A little kid is watching them go to town and he gets so excited he has to run and pee. <laughs> and we get to see him peeing on a wall. <laughs> it's like, this little kid is so thrilled he pees. Uh, the story, uh, such as it is, well, not such as it is. The story is about uh, the leader of this troupe. This, he's, you know, a blustery, actorly type, is there to visit... His illegitimate son, no, uh, he knows who the son is, but uh, nobody else knows like that he had a son at this uh, in the city the last time he visited. And it's about how uh, at first uh, somebody tries to uh, set the son up with uh, a woman with a bad reputation. Mm. Uh, but as it turns out, they fall in love. And it's about all of these tensions that arise between this romance between the actor's son, uh, the the son's mother and the son's uh, new paramour mm. and all yeah, and all the tensions therein. Uh, it's. But again, like in true Ozu style, it's told more in the little things that aren't said. And it's told in a really gentle, humane sort of way. There's no exploitation here. There's nothing wrenching or harrowing about floating weeds. Even if you watch something like Tokyo Story, which is about a family that's essentially eroding, mm-hmm. uh, there's there's a kind of gentle, humane pleasantness to the inevitable tragedy. So when it hits, it actually feels a lot more real mm. uh, rather than like a movie thing. It's not a melodrama that's like seeking to manipulate you. Uh, and Floating Weeds has that same quality. It, it really just sort of drifts through. Uh, Ozu is really fond of, uh, I don't want to say padding out, but gently inserting sort of random shots throughout his movie that establish not tone or place, but a sense of pacing. Hmm. Like, we'll have a scene, and then there'll just be a shot of, like, the side of a home. Not anybody's home, just a house. This little little lacuna in the drama or, you know, the shot of, of some telephone wires or of a, of a beach. And these little things lend a lot of his films, this almost kind of relaxing meditative quality that allows all of the drama to feel all that more natural, all that more lived in and all that much more humane. Uh, Floating Weeds was a film I, I never heard of mm-hmm. uh, until I was like in my 20s and I'm starting yeah. looking through, you know, I was really interested in cinema and I start looking through all these magazine lists of like, here are the best movies of all time. And Floating Weeds kept showing up. I was like, what the hell is Floating Weeds? Yeah. I've never heard of this thing. And I ended up finding it at like a local library. There was no cover on it. It was just like a, a, a plastic box with a, a bare tape inside. It's like, oh God, I'm, I, I'm not renting a, a snuff film, am I? <laughs> it's like really kind of eerie. But I watched it and I saw that like this was sort of my intro to Ozu. And I, I don't think I quite got it at the time. I've seen several more well, Ozu Have you seen the original? And, uh, no. Okay. No, but I've seen the, a lot of Ozu since then. And I feel yeah. like... The movie is well, so good that that's irrelevant. It's such an amazing oh, movie. Just, it, yeah. It's a remake and it's very good. Yeah. 
Yeah, well, I'm, I'm, saying, not, I, I'm not I, comparing it to the original. To, I'm just to, saying it's a to me. I make film. that a slight factor, okay. but like you, you don't. That's fine. I just yeah. want to check. All right. Because uh, if you had seen both, I would be curious about what you saw. As a yeah, I actually yeah. haven't seen a story of floating okay. weeds. And uh, Criterion put out this big two uh, DVD set where, okay. you, where you can get both versions. Nice. And I think both versions are on the channel as well. Okay, my number one could not be more different than yours. <laughs> like you would, you would be hard pressed to find a film that was more opposite. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> like you could, the only way you could be more opposite is if the title of the movie was Floating Weeds Backwards. Like, it's the only way. <laughs> because I, I was thinking about, like, what do you, what, how do I pick the best mm. movie remake? And, again, it's not just the best movie that happens to be a remake. I think mm. remake should be important. I think the idea that it is a remake should be significant, at least in the number one spot, to mm. me. And so I was thinking about what is a remake but an act of transformation mm-hmm. and also an act of criticism because if we felt like the original nailed it we wouldn't make another one would we you know mm-hmm. we would just be like oh yeah the movie's perfect i'm not gonna be making that they do it anyway but all right they, they do but like i think ideally mm-hmm. you would say to yourself i have something to add Re- remember when they remade the remake of the thing <laughs> well and uh, technically it was a prequel fine <laughs> it still it still plays like a remake i think they called it a requel because it's a technically a sequel but it plays just well, like a remake te- te- it, well it was a pre it was technically a prequel to the 1982 film technically it's a new story but the sequel. story beats are identical i know it's so annoying <laughs> it's not a good movie it's so frustrating um but uh in any case i was thinking i felt like for me the best remake ever, if I'm going to call the best remake ever, should mm. be a commentary of some kind, or at the very least, in its existence, mm. be sort of a part of the conversation of the original. And that is why I have picked, as the greatest remake of all time, Airplane. <laughs> I'm oh, sorry, it has an exclamation re- point at the end. Airplane! Remake of that classic Zero Hour. Which itself was a remake! So let me, let me guide you through this, because not everyone appreciates mm. or understands that re- Airplane is... A remake. It's not just inspired by the airplane disaster movies that were very popular at the time. It is a very close remake mm-hmm. of this movie called Zero Hour, which starred Dana Andrews from The Best Years of Our Lives, Sterling Hayden from The Killing and uh, uh, Doctor Strange Love, and of course Elroy Crazy Legs Hirsch. <laughs> Elroy Crazy Legs Hirsch. <laughs> this is actually his credited name in the movie. <laughs> He he looks like Buzz Lightyear. Like he's got this incredible cleft chin, like this incredible, like incredibly built human being. He was a football player who starred in like eight movies, one of which was called Crazy Legs, which is a biopic about himself. Oh my god. And uh he's hilarious in this movie because he has all of these lines that are supposed to be read with absolute seriousness, and he's very funny. Mm. Zero Hour is an adaptation, or rather a remake, of a TV movie called... Oh, what was it? Oh, hold on. What was it? What was the, was the original called Terror in the Sky? No. The original... I think the original was also called Zero Hour. Okay. <laughs> well, whatever. Anyway. Uh, it's a remake of a TV movie that starred James Doohan from Star Trek as Ted Stryker. Dana Andrews played Ted Stryker in Zero Hour. And they are uh, war veterans... Pilots who made questionable decisions in the heat of battle and now can't fly. Mm. And their careers are ruined and their relationships are falling apart and their wives are leaving them and they're going to get on this plane because it just matters so much to them now. But wouldn't you know it, there's a horrible rampant case of food poisoning and now everyone on the plane is going to die, including the pilots who are both incapacitated because damn it, they ate the fish! 
And we have to find somebody back there who can not only fly this plane, but who didn't have fish for dinner. Now, Airplane plays that line as a joke. Zero That's, hour, it's the same line it's and it's dead serious. Many of the lines of dialogue that get huge laughs in airplane are spoken aloud in zero hour with dead seriousness. Many of the setups for the best jokes in airplane mm. are in zero hour, but without the punchline. <laughs> hey Johnny, how about some coffee? No thanks. Just cut out no thanks. It's the exact same line. Mm. It's an entirely different kind of flying. Altogether. <laughs> It's an entirely different kind of flying. They leave out the, that uh, that line is in there without the punchline. The makers of Airplane were just leaving their VCRs on at night, and they caught a rerun of Zero Hour, and they realized this movie is ridiculous. It was actually pretty well received at the time, but it's absurdly self serious mm. for how absolutely hilarious it is. There's a scene where they're trying to call for Sterling Hayden because he's the guy who can like sort of call talk Ted Stryker through the landing process, but they don't was know that, where he is. Is that the Robert Stack character? Yeah, the Robert Stack oh, character God, is played okay. by Sterling Hayden in the original. Oh, also, wow. would have been funny in Airplane, <laughs> and. They're, they call him up and they get his babysitter who is listening to the stupidest sounding rock song you've ever heard. And it's completely jarring and hilarious. The, the, the movie Airplane is a commentary about that kind of self-seriousness, that kind of completely thuddingly serious disaster movie. Mm. It's also, of course... A bit of a parody of the airport movies. The airport movies are based on a book by Arthur Haley. Arthur Haley wrote the original movie Zero Hours based on. <laughs> so it all comes back together. Um, I'm sorry. The original, uh, uh, the, the, uh, the original movie, the TV movie was Flight into Danger. Okay. Starring uh, Scotty from Star Trek in the Ted Stryker role. Yeah. Uh, it was also, Airplane, the second remake of Zero Hour after Terror in the Sky, which starred Doug McClure. Oh my uh, god. It's this huge Can't get away from this thing. It's this huge giant history. It's the fourth film with this exact plot and it's the only one anyone remembers. Because this is the one that actually took all of those movies and say, that's ridiculous. We're going to completely reframe this and we're going to point out how ridiculous it is. And now people don't even remember it's a remake. <laughs> and it's one of the funniest movies ever made. Maybe the funniest. Mm -hmm. That's not exaggeration. It's, if you argue that the airplane is the funniest movie ever made, I'm not going to fight you on it. <laughs> even if I disagree, which I'm not sure I do. I'll be like, yeah, yeah, mm -hmm. kind of, yeah. So... It's a commentary on all of the kinds of movies that were popular for a while, reframed them, changed them forever, mm -hmm. and turned them into jokes forever, while also telling, and I'm going to say this right now, having seen Zero Hour, which I watched for this podcast, the actual story of Ted Stryker overcoming his PTSD, oh. landing the plane, and, and ending up uh, with, his, with his wife more effectively conveyed in airplane <laughs> like i buy it more in airplane i'm actually more emotionally invested in the characters than i am in the serious version of this movie it's captain jolene severe shell shock he thinks he's ethel merman <laughs> yo be swell great Oh. I, I can recite this goddamn movie. I love movie. Airplane. And if you've seen Airplane, you can also recite Zero Hour. You're right. So <laughs> much of the movie is word for word 
It's astounding, but it's a completely transformed experience. Yeah. And I got to give him credit, man. That's genius. That's an excellent choice. That's an excellent choice. It might be a weird choice, but I think it's an excellent choice. And so those are our lists. Right. Uh, but let's. I assume we have a few runners up because there's a lot of great yeah. remakes out there. So, Wendy, what are your, what's your runners up? Uh, re, uh, a really bizarre movie of a really bizarre short, Twelve Monkeys, the Terry Gilliam film. Oh, I didn't re- even think of that. Yeah, that's it was a, a good one. It was yeah. a remake of Chris Marker's La Jetée. Yeah, yeah um, that, that should totally have been on my at yeah. least my runners up. Uh, I know it's a big piece of Hollywood junk, but I'm very fond of Ben Hur, uh, okay. the, the Best Picture winner uh, with with Charlton Heston. As, Didn't make my list, Ben Hur, but uh, fair enough. Uh, people like to mention The Departed. I'm I'm very movie. fond of The Birdcage, which is a remake of La Cage au Fall. I think I, The Birdcage is better than La Cage au Fall. I've never seen La Cage, uh, so I yeah, left it, it off my it's, list. Yeah. It, it, it plays into stereotypes. You watch it today, and it might be a little cringy, but... Uh, at the time, it was a big deal, you know, big Hollywood studio film with uh, uh, two gay males as the main characters. It was great. Mm-hmm. Uh, I really love Dirty Rotten Scoundrels. It turns yes. out that's a remake of a 1967 movie. Another one I haven't seen, yeah. but God, Dirty Rotten Scoundrels is Dirty funny. Rotten Scoundrels is so funny. Funny. Did you know Some Like It Hot is a remake? I did, actually. Okay. But I haven't seen the original of that one yeah, either. I haven't seen the original, but, so yeah. I wasn't going to put it on there. People but don't I, talk about it. I do love me some Some Like It Hot. Um if you haven't seen Sorcerer, uh, don't take caffeine beforehand. I've actually never <laughs> seen Sorcerer. Uh, I've, I've projected Sorcerer, and it's it is tense. I wanted to see Sorcerer. Mm. I didn't. I wasn't able mm. to make the time before I saw this, but mm. like because like this is almost the end of the month right now, oh. so we had to record. But I, that was something I was trying to see because everyone tells me it's a remake of a great film called Wages of Fear, which I do love. Yeah, it's about a, it's essentially about a bunch of ruffians who can't get a job who have to transport a truck full of nitroglycerin. Yeah, and how hard that is. Yeah, because the slightest bump in the road is, could yeah. explode. You. They have to go across like rickety wooden bridges and stuff. It's it's uh, you know just the task, but it's yeah. yeah it's so tense that you're just glued to it. Yeah, Is that your whole and, uh, no, and uh, yeah. I I don't think it outstrips the original, but I do like Sabrina, the Sidney Pollock film, That's a good movie. Sidney Pollock remake with yeah. with Harrison Ford. I think it's it, it's a classy movie. It feels, it's very charming. It, yeah, it feels a, a, like kind of grown up. Greg Kinnear steals that movie for me. He's very funny as, as the irresponsible son. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and uh, like, okay, meet me in my office. Where is it? Yeah, like he's, the, he's the one part of that remake that I actually think is better than the original. I think Greg Kinnear is a stronger. It's William Holden in the original. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think I think Greg Kinnear. I buy her being obsessed with Greg Kinnear mm. more than I do with William Holden. Yeah, I, I think Julie Armand is fine. And if you're gonna get a, a '90s analog to Bogart, Harrison Ford is kind of where it's at. He's an underappreciated comic yeah. actor, I feel, and he has to be very understated in that film. That's a good mm. movie. I'm glad you picked that. Yeah, actually. yeah nice. I, I like I like that remake of Sabrina. Mm. And to give an, one final shout out to Quibi. Uh, <laughs> What? Earlier this oh, year, yes. there was a home movie, The Princess Bride, and they okay. remade the exact same script to The Princess Bride, uh, asking all the famous people they could get a hold of mm. to enact a scene or even just a line or two in their homes from uh, William Goldman's screenplay. And you know what? It's really kind of charming. Mm. And uh, you'll hear uh, on, on our network uh, a two and a half hour conversation that B. Peterson and I had about Quibi and all the shows we were able to see during its very brief run. And uh, B. Peterson brought up the excellent point that it is uh, because it, it's it's a fairy tale narrative. Mm-hmm. And in the original 1987 film, it's uh, framed as somebody reading a story to their grandson mm-hmm. and about how, uh, you know, it lends that sort of fairy tale quality to it. And this one does it one better by having people just sort of enact the scenes they remember. They are kind of living within this fairy tale narrative as well now. So I, I think it actually 
in in a way strengthens a certain part of of the princess bride. I, I've seen a lot of clips. It looks really damn cute. It it's really, really cute, nice. and yeah. yeah, and it ends with a cameo from Carl Reiner, which yeah. is the last thing he ever filmed before oh. he died. That's so sweet. Oh. Okay, so yeah, that's he, he, he plays the grandfather, and, and, he, and, says, he, and he, says, he says "as you wish." And who's who's playing the grandson in that scene? Rob Reiner, his son, who directed is, the Princess who Bride. Who directed the Princess Bride? And it's yeah. in bed. It's like, Grandpa, can you read it to me again? And Carl Reiner says, "As you wish," and you're crying and crying and crying uh. at fucking Quibi. <laughs> <laughs> okay. okay, rest in peace. All right. That's your runners up. Yeah. Okay. Again, I have two listed runners up. Mm-hmm. One where I've seen both versions, and one where I've only seen one. Yeah. Uh, so real fast, if I'm as quick as I can. His Girl Friday remake of the front page. Uh, actually, I think they're both pretty equal, but one has Rosalind Russell and the other doesn't. <laughs> and I think His Girl Friday gets the winner right. in, in that yeah. one. I, th- uh, I think I prefer the original, but yeah. they're basically the same film though. Mm-hmm. Uh, 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 Dawn of the Dead, Zack Snyder's version. Gonna like, give it a lot of credit. The, the first 15 minutes, at least. No, I think the whole thing. I think mm. I'm not the biggest fan of Romero's version. I find it frustratingly slow. I, I, I do as well. <laughs> I, yeah. And I actually think Zack Snyder's version is actually the superior version of that film, mm. even though, of course, I acknowledge the significance of the original. Uh, let's see. The Magnificent Seven, remake of The Seven Samurai, but it's the mm. all-star movie version with Yul Brenner and Steve McQueen and James Coburn, and it's not as good as The Seven Samurai, but it's great in its own right. Uh, same thing with Fistful of Dollars, remake of Yojimbo. I prefer the original, but Leone's version is also fantastic. Uh, going back to Scorsese, his version of Cape Fear is more like a horror movie than the original, mm. which felt like just like the, the grossest noir, uh, but it's excellent. I'm a big fan. I, I haven't seen Scorsese's version. Big so. fan. I only re- saw the the original recently. Yeah, a uh, big fan of the remake of The Blob. Boy, is that movie gross. <laughs> the the Chuck Russell film. Yeah, it's great. Yeah. Uh, let's it's got, see. Got a great Blob. Uh, two of the Disney remakes, I think. Actually, three actually of the Disney remakes of the recent era are actually better than the original. Uh, Pete's Dragon. Uh, uh, the Jungle Book, which I think is actually even a little stronger than the, at least as a narrative, mm. and uh, but most importantly, Kenneth Branagh's Cinderella. That that's the good one. Of yeah, the, of the lot. Uh, let's see. And, and I like Tim Burton's Dumbo, but I know it's yeah. I, I can't defend it too passionately. On similar lines with Rob Zombie's Halloween Two, and that it remakes elements of a of a whole franchise. Uh, the remake of Friday the Thirteenth is a surprisingly good movie. Like it's a it's, rock um, solid slasher. If it's it was the a, first one, you'd go, yeah, I see why that was a hit. Like, they should have just called it a sequel. It, it would have been a sequel. It, I don't know why just, they have to... All you have to do is remove the part where he finds his mask. And that's the most, uh, that's the most like, completely... fan service bit. It's so yeah. awkward. It doesn't mean anything. It's stupid. He, there's never been a reason for him to have a hockey mask. Yeah, right. uh, I had Nosferatu the Vampire on here. I had Ocean's Eleven on here. Uh, this is a movie I think might make the list eventually, but it's too soon. And that's uh, Lee Whannell's The Invisible Man. That's a really good one. That's a really good remake. Mm. Uh, but the, a Star is Born, I had that on there as well. Mm. Uh, the Invasion of the Body Snatchers from the 70s and also Body Snatchers from the 90s. I like Body Snatchers from the 90s a lot. That's good. For our movie. We should make a movie called Body Snatchers from the 90s. <laughs> <laughs> Just a bunch of guys in flannel. It, it, yeah, it takes you over and flannel grows around your body. Your, your bangs grow down in front of your eyes. Uh, and then lastly, on my, this list of runners-up, uh, It Chapter 1. Not chapter two. Chapter two doesn't work. <laughs> it chapter, it chapter one, one is a great remake of that miniseries. Uh, and then the, I didn't see both versions, but the remake is amazing list mm. real fast. Uh, Michael Mann's Heat. Not everyone remembers that that's a remake of a mm. TV movie. Uh, the Wizard of Oz. I never saw the silent version. 
Uh, let's see here. Uh, Tokyo Godfathers. Oh, there you go. Wonderful Satoshi Kon film. I never saw three Godfathers. I thought though. that was going to be like high up on your list. I, I was going to try I, to make the time to see the original so I could feel comfortable discussing it. Right. Never, but it, it's amazing. Mm-hmm. Uh, Fatal Attraction. People forget that's a remake. I never mm-hmm. saw the original French film. Um, I've actually never seen the original To Be or Not To Be. But I really like the Mel Brooks version. <laughs> it's really funny. Mm-hmm. And I think it works. Um, let's see here. And I've never seen uh, the original The Birdcage, nor have I seen the original Some Like It Hot. But those are great movies. And uh, that is the Iron List for this month. Thank you, everybody, for listening. Watch all those movies. One, Only one overlap between the two of us. I I always think there's going to be more, and there hardly ever is. I think think last time we had a few, but... Mm. Um, anyway, and it was The Fly. Good movie. Uh, so yeah, next time on the Iron List, uh, it'll be another poll. We're going to put it up on the Patreon page sometime in the next week. Y'all will vote for it. People who, anyone, every patron, even at the $1 a month level, gets to vote in all of our polls. Yeah. Uh, and you can help us decide what the next Iron List is going to be. It won't be Christmas movies, because we did that one already. So that that cliche has been killed. <laughs> uh, so it might not be seasonal. That's fine. We'll just do something else. Not everything has to be. No, it's we're, fun, we're... but no. We're not, we're not all SEO machines over here. Maybe it'll be the best winter movies. About the winter. Yeah. Winter's Tale. Oh, that would be on our Shakespeare list. <laughs> um, I, I don't want to have too many overlaps, though. No. I actually felt bad putting Airplane on here, because I put it on my list of the best movies that start with the letter A. <laughs> That's right, you did. And also, eventually, hopefully one day, people will vote for the best movies that start with the letter B. I would like to do the whole alphabet someday. But if you don't vote for it, we won't do it. That's all there is to it. That's fair. Um, but uh, in any case, yeah, that poll will be up at patreon.com slash critically acclaimed network in the very near future. You can also find a ton of other exclusive content on there, uh, including uh, Not on Disney Plus, where we talk about movies that aren't on Disney Plus, but are Disney films, which is weird. Uh, we have Holy Batman, where we talk about every episode of the Batman 1960s series. All our yesterdays, our Star Trek podcast, one podcast per Star Trek. We're doing every single episode and every single movie, and for the Thanksgiving weekend, we actually did a huge dump where, uh, I'm not going to put it that way, actually. A huge dump? <laughs> Why would I put it that way? We, we did, released a whole bunch at did, once. Did. We released a whole bunch at once. Why did I do that? I took a huge dump. Show no, on no, you. we released a huge dump. Re- oh, okay, so great. No. That's much better. We, we released five new episodes of All Our Yesterdays at once, and also we unlocked the first five episodes of All Our Yesterdays mm. for all of our patrons at Lower who might not otherwise be able to access it is our way of doing a holiday marathon. Uh, so we hope you enjoyed that. Uh, and of course, we got commentary tracks pretty soon. In the next couple of days, we're planning to record a commentary track for the James Bond film, Die Another Day, because... Because uh, Die Another Day needs a, a commentary track. Someone need needs to, talk, to do it. Need to talk about that one. Yeah. There's a lot to say. There really is, actually. Um, and, of course, uh, you can follow us on Twitter at Critic Acclaim. I am at William Bibiani. I'm at Whitney Seibold. And if you want to email us and ask us questions, take us to task for this list, let us know if we left out a great remake uh, that you felt deserved at least an honorable mention or better, uh, you can always email us letters at criticallyacclaimed.net. We might read your email in an upcoming episode of We've Got Mail. When am I forgetting anything? Uh, I'm still selling my audio dramas. You sure are. Uh, I sell my audio dramas. Uh, contact me on any of the uh, the social networks. Mm. And uh, th- that is uh, Twitter or Instagram. You can even mm. find me. And I'm selling you, uh, I could sell you one of my original 30-minute audio dramas recorded mm. with original music and a full cast. Uh, they're all good. And, if you, and, and you know <laughs> and, what? Uh, and you, if you want to buy all three, I'll give you cut you a deal. And if you uh, want to hear me act, Mm. Uh, you can check out From Beyond the Broadcast, which is a new uh, weird science fiction audio series 
uh, created by a friend of mine, uh, Chelsea Spirito. Uh, and she has cast me as Jam Handy, the hobo <laughs> crypt keeper host character. Nice. Who gets to introduce the stories. And uh, if you're looking for something to get people for Christmas, may I suggest a new horror novel? Uh, by M. Lapas de Silva, <laughs> uh, who has been on the show before. Uh, her novel, Hooker. And, and you know her personally, right? Well, yeah, we're married. But it's a great <laughs> novel. It is a it is a feminist, uh, queer-friendly, uh, sex-work-positive, retro-wave slasher novel set in the 1980s in Los Angeles, uh, where a sex worker uses hooks uh, to fight off a misogynistic serial killer. It's cool and actually the, re- the reviews have been really good nice we had a really great review on medium mm. um and uh yeah so uh, that's available on amazon right now you can get that in print or an ebook mm. um so uh yeah anyway we should uh, we should let everyone go about our day because this has been a long podcast <laughs> thank you everybody for listening and uh that's the list